This is Diakonos, a Cops Calling Podcast, Season 2, Episode 19. On this episode, I kick up the dust with the founder of Support Our Shields, Henry Hollywood Morris. I'm Anthony Weaver, and on Diakonos, a Cops Calling, one of my goals just one of them, is to push back against the negative narrative about law enforcement. Over and over again, we are being told that law enforcement is systemically racist and is to be blamed for many of the ills in this country. My guest, Henry Hollywood Morris, is going to share his riveting story and give some strong pushback to that narrative. He's going to lay out how he grew up around crime, both inside his home and on the streets around which he lived, his journey through adolescence, and now his passionate support of law enforcement and his ongoing stand against woke ideology. He is the founder of Support Our Shields and the Critical Conversations podcast, and you don't want to miss his unique take on the current culture that we find ourselves in. After that, I'll highlight a cue the dip officer who battled through a horrific incident where two of his fellow officers were killed and he was injured. And then lastly, I'll close out the episode with some thoughts about smashing idols in our lives. My guest on this episode is Henry Hollywood Morris. Hollywood has an amazing story about growing up surrounded by crime and childhood trauma in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He refused to let his circumstances define him or his future and has become a very vocal advocate for the police and pushing against the woke ideologies that threaten both that profession and this country. He is the founder of Support Our Shields and the Critical Conversations podcast, and I'm honored to welcome him onto this podcast, the Diakonos, a cop's calling podcast. Hollywood, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, brother. It is is actually, um, I'm so excited, and it's an honor for me to be here because, of course, we connected um, on Twitter a couple of months ago and started following each other. So I got a chance to listen to previous podcasts, and that's why I reached out to you. I'm like, can I come on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, I'm really glad you did. Uh, I do remember, I, I think it was earlier this year, we connected on Twitter, we exchanged some yes. messages, and I started looking at your stuff. And and yes. even back then, I was, you know, kind of in the back of my head, I was like, you know what, I might I might uh, like like for this guy to come on at some point. And I didn't know your whole story. And then, uh, you know, we continued kind of some back and forth and I started listening to a lot more of your stuff and and your story. And I was like, yeah, I think uh, I think this would be a a great uh, guest to have on. So I'm really happy you're here. I got to ask you right off the top. When did you get the nickname Hollywood and who gave that to you? (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that is an awesome question. I actually get that a lot because and I'm a junior. So Henry. Morris it w- was my dad, okay. you know, and um, I, I hated that because it's actually Henry Clay Morris. And so they called him Henry Clay or Clay. And um, he's from or he was from uh, South Alabama. So you could already get that <laughs> how that story went. And um, actually, he is the one who introduced me to video a uh, very early age. He, he would always share a story that he said he gave me a microphone when I was two. And I was just, he had this den that we were never allowed to go in without him with all of his record collections and eight tracks that, okay. that dates that for you, right? Okay. 
And uh, he said that I was just captivated by his his microphone and, and his equipment. And so I did my first little puppet show in pre-first, <laughs> created all the characters. And uh, by the fifth grade, my school had actually gotten closed circuit TV and we started our own little morning show. And uh, they hadn't come up with the name Hollywood just yet. I was actually big H before then because I was like the second biggest kid in school. Gotcha. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, the love for the camera just grew from there. And so, you know, in the hood, I was always this kid running around with a camera and, you know, they would joke, of course, mind you, this is late eighties, early nineties, Arsenio Hall has exploded in the Arsenio Hall show. And we would kind of mock it and do our own little show at home. And that's where my sister actually came up with the name, my older sister, Monica, about uh, Hollywood. Okay. And of course, my dad being a Cowboys fan, the linebacker, Hollywood Henderson. So that stuck with the family from there. And by high school, that just became, you know, the name everyone knew. And, and, and I never let it go, even after uh, coming to the Lord, because what it started to symbolize for me is when I really understood what the media is doing um, in our country and, and this attack on Christianity, and then it became like this mission to expose you know, what goes on really in, inside of Hollywood. Okay. There, that is a great story. Most times you ask people how they got their nickname and it's like, oh, you know, one day one of my friends called it, but that right there, <laughs> yes. that is how you get a nickname. Uh, yes. I love it. Um, so, well, listen, hey, I really want to get into all those things you're passionate about, um, which is, you know, your ongoing efforts to support the police, something that really attracted me to following you on social media. Um, yes. And the support our shield stuff. And then, you know, you're also really passionate about pushing back against this woke social justice stuff, something Absolutely. that I'm really, you know, fired up about a lot uh, that that's harming both, you know, the black community and the law enforcement community. Uh, yes, but, but, absolutely. but before that, you know, something I just really like to do on these episodes is dive into the stories of my guests, how they grew up, their journey your journey specifically on how you ended up doing some of these projects. So can you just, can you just talk about the area you grew up in? I already said it was Fort Lauderdale, but can you describe yes. the area you grew up in, what your home life was like and what, what that area was like? Yes. Chaotic is a, is an understatement okay. brother, because uh, I, I love to share this because of course the image that most people have, especially uh, if they're not from South Florida, is the Fort Lauderdale that is presented on all of the travel yes. promotions <laughs> yeah. and the tourist commercials uh, of the beach. And that was not my experience. So um, in, within Fort Lauderdale, there was a community uh, called uh, Royal Palm Estates. And so we just took off the estates and it was Royal Palm. So this this was a lot of um, low income. You did have some homeowners. Uh, maybe a few uh, low mid income. And um, I was born in 1976 and we didn't uh, actually I didn't leave that area until, until after graduating high school. Uh, so you what you had was, you know, your typical what I thought of again. Again, if you've never been anywhere else, what do you compare it to? But I, I thought that this was normal. And I, I would say, you know, you you had, you know, problems that you would have in a, in a midsize neighborhood, you know, uh, drag racing, 
Uh, you know, you have some, you know, of course, there's a few local convenience stores and, and you have the loitering issue. Things really changed in the mid to late 80s when the crack epidemic exploded. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I did not understand those early years. Now, now we there are six siblings and there's a huge age gap. My oldest sister is 16 years older than I am. Okay. So think of it in, you know, that inner city, um, you know, reality that you have today. So you would understand most people thought she was my mom because by the time I started elementary school, she was an adult. Gotcha. And we thought that our dad was the harshest dictator, you know, that ever lived because he would not allow us to leave the gate in our, in our duplex. And we, you know, my sisters always complained. It wasn't until probably mid, you know, or, well, pre-teens, Anthony, that I really, and like I said, when the crack epidemic really exploded, that I understood why he didn't want us, you know, to just go freely around the neighborhood. It wasn't the type of neighborhood to do that in. And just to give you an example, uh, my wife, grew up about six blocks away. And there, you know, I also want to clear the picture for you, give you a clearer picture that a lot of times, you know, people's mind, their their vision goes to like something in New Jack City. So it wasn't that, you know, okay. you had park, there was a park, Bass Park was in walking distance. Oswald Park was in bike riding distance. And so, again, like you said, about pushing back against some of these woke narratives and these politicians, because they that's that's a claim they'll make. Well, these resources aren't in the community. Yes, they were. But. Bro, the the park was I mean, you have drug addicts in the park. I mean, we we literally as a teenager, they're gambling. Who gambles on kids, 12 (laughs) and 14 year olds basketball games and then pulled a gun on us because we lost. Okay. His money. This was the reality of why our parents didn't want us to really go out as much. So it was it was the people in the community, you know, that were the problems that, you know, that caused, of course, you know, why why the crack flooded in. So uh, in 1988, whatever direction we went in on 20th Street that we grew up on. So there's a uh, there was a crack house uh, to the west at the end of the block. So that's like six houses down. Uh, there was a crack house, four houses down to the west. And then eventually there was a crack house almost directly across the street from us, which mysteriously burned down while they were uh, while the streets were split open to put in the sewer system. OK, to this day, we've wondered if our dad has something to do with it, because, bro, at 10 o'clock at night, this crack house just comes you know goes aflames and the fire trucks couldn't get to it immediately so it literally burned to the ground okay he never took credit for it but we always wondered (laughs) we always wondered about that's wild and 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 so and i guess too like i want people to you know understand that the crack epidemic so when i when i got on the job in 2000 2001 yes the crack epidemic we it was still very prevalent where I work, yes. but it was, it was kind of the tail end of it. The, the yeah, 80s exactly. and, and the 90s were really, really bad in pretty Absolutely much every urban area because yes. what crack brought with it was, first of all, you had, you had addiction problems, but then 
it brought a lot of violence with it as well. Yes. And yes. Uh, and see, that was the part, like you're saying, bro, that turned the, you know, like I said, this, this wasn't grow, you know, now mind, like I said, I, I was very young, so I wasn't seeing it from an adult perspective and, and, um, the value of your home and that, and that type of thing. But, you know, you knew who you, you knew who your neighbors were. Um, and you know, you, you were told to respect them. We were raised like that. And literally in, I can't even say a generation, this is less than a decade. And you literally saw that change almost within months Yeah, that's wild. as the crack houses started sprouting up. And so I share with people a lot. I thought it was normal to see, again, I had never lived anywhere where else, but to see people walking down the street at two or three in the morning. Right. Because that's what we saw. Right. It wasn't until I moved away that I was like, that's not normal. <laughs> where are you going at three o'clock in the morning in this, in this neighborhood? I mean, like, you know, of course they look, dis- you know, disturbed. Correct. And, um, because they're, you know, looking for, you know, that, that next hit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what's even crazier as you're talking about that, I can remember, um, you know, you know, as a police officer and as you gained more experience, I actually had something I called the happy crack walk because you could, yep. you could see people you could at early in the morning and they yep. would be walking a certain way uh, yes. as if they were looking for something. And then you would exactly. you would circle the block and or, or five, 10 minutes later, come back through and they'd be walking with purpose with a spring in your step. And you were like, man, exactly. I know, I know they're holding right now. Now, obviously you exactly. need, a, you need a reason to, to, to stop and, and, and explore that. But yes. that, that, that type of experience too, I think a lot of times in these conversations that we have regarding the police working in urban areas that have a primarily a population of, of black or Latino people, yes. they, they don't, they, they want to, completely cut out this the the experience level of the officers that know that area and know the people that they're dealing with um so yeah it just it kind of gave me like a little bit of a, a flashback when you're talking about people walking at two three in the morning and and me patrolling and and seeing and trying to figure out you know what what are people doing why why are we walking right now right um, and, and like you said that's the part that gets conveniently left out of these conversations that really have more of a political power motive to it. So then to give you, you know, an even better picture, Anthony, th- this, you know, like I said, we would be out. This is the times where we're leaving now. Again, my dad was from South Alabama, so we would drive there every year, usually for Father's Day for him to go visit his family and his father. So if you want to get to Loxley, Alabama, which is the closest major city is Mobile, you know, you're getting on the road three o'clock in the morning so that you could be there by three in the afternoon. And, you know, he would always be apprehensive if we were leaving and we were in a duplex. If our neighbors were they were from Georgia, if they weren't going to be there because, see, with the crack houses came the rise in crime to pay for the crack. So then you had, you know, this like on like this onslaught of of home and, you know, uh, burglaries. Right. And uh, we we had experiences, even uh, uh, one incident, I was in middle school, bro, so I had to be about 13, where this drug dealer was running from the police, because, of course, if you listen to BLM, they never do that. And he 
kicked in the screen door of the neighbor. Our dad is at work. Uh, our parents, our parents are separated at that time. So we're, uh, we, we stay, you know, we live with my, uh, dad full time. Okay. And this, he's there. Uh, the, the, the neighbor, she's home alone, older woman, and he's begging her not to call the police. She brings him over to us. <laughs> the only two people are home. I'm 13. My brother is 11. And he's using our phone to call his girlfriend to come get him and trying to give us cash not to call the police. Yeah. This was like your reality. Right. You know, of what could happen at any time. And we're like, well, if. She doesn't get here before our dad gets home. You are going to wish the police had caught you because he's just going to start popping. And it's not it's, it's not going to be any question. He didn't care about the story. But this was like this was not it was not uncommon when that hit to, you know, helicopters, you know, having the, the high beam, the police helicopters at night, you know, um, you know, the high speed chase because someone is running you know, from the police and, you know, like the, the, the police were doing everything they could to get the drug dealers and the crack houses out of the community. Again, here's another thing that of course gets left out of the conversation, the, the cooperation you actually get from the residents who live in that community. If no one sees anything and no one wants to talk, then the problem, the cancer metastasizes it gets worse. And then we literally play a political game and turn around and blame the police. Yeah. Yet when they come to investigate, no one knows who's doing this. And so, like I said, if you go six blocks over, my wife's neighborhood was better, you know, more homeowners, uh, more uh, families that were middle class, but they were dealing with it from the theft because the people would steal from them. And then, um, Six blocks from her, probably a mile away, you had the um, the government, you had the project. And so that's where a lot of it started. But of course, they can't steal from what you don't have. So they went to the closest proximity to do the stealing. It got so bad. I'm like, who steals um, blankets and, <laughs> and floor mats? And, and someone stole, they, they had a neighborhood drug addict. Um, and he stole plants off of her mom's right. porch. She's like, who steals plants? But that's just how when you like you said, when when they're on this, this is just how their mind, you know, is functioning. And it, and it hit home for us because that older sister that I was talk, telling you about, you know, became addicted to it. And so mm-hmm. the break ins were actually coming from a family member. And then you have parents who are torn. They don't want to press charges or prosecute because it's a child. But then you're not dealing you're actually not holding them accountable and actually getting a solution to the problem. Yeah. Now this is a, a pretty personal question. Yes. Hearing that you you said your your sister um got addicted to it. How is she how is she now? Um is she still ad- in the throes of addiction or is she doing better? Yeah, she is doing better. Um I believe it's been about three years. We, we, we don't have much of a relationship, to be honest with you, because what happens is it for her in her case, it went from crack to prescription. OK, yeah. And then it started a pattern of, you know, the falling to get a hospital, to get a doctor's prescription, to get uh, pain, you know, to get the pain medication and the um, 
the over-the-counter drugs, yeah. the, you know, and then then you need harder over-the-counter drugs. So this has been, if this started in 87, so imagine this has been like a 30-year yeah. uh, uh, battle, and there were four children in the midst of that. And so it's heartbreaking to have your oldest. Now, remember what I told you, the age gap. So you right. got to imagine he's married and having kids by the time that I'm a first grader you know, in, in elementary school. And so my oldest nephew, we're only eight years apart, but there was a time where basically I was the primary uh, caregiver, even in high school, because both parents were in jail and they had to live, you know, with, with us. And because I was the, you know, the oldest boy. And actually at that point, it's just my brother, my younger brother, we're the only two kids left in the house, but I, the, my day consisted of getting up getting dressed for high school, getting them dressed for elementary school and taking them to school. And then well, dropping them off to school on the way to high school myself. Yeah. So that domino effect affects not only the, you know, the family, it affects the community, which is why we see the problems we we're seeing now. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and it just speaks to the fact that it's not a victimless crime. You know, you will hear it's not. some it's of these not. pundits talk about how exactly you know, because they don't legalize live in it. Right. Yeah. And, and so that oldest, her oldest son, for him to tell me, so uh, he's now in his mid-30s, and it'll break your heart, bro. He remembers, he couldn't have been any older than six, but he remembers a point in time, a point in time when they were living in a crack house. Hmm. This is the things that, you know, when they're, you know, doing these cute hashtags that don't get addressed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about your your father too a little bit. Um yeah. in in listening to some of your your podcasts and and some of the conversations you've had regarding your father seems like it was you know he was a flawed man but he yes. also had a great impact on you. Can you just talk about some of those flaws but the 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 tension that you that was in that relationship and the impact he did have in you and and how he helped you and or or hurt you as as you were growing up around him. Yes. Oh, absolutely. When when I did his eulogy, and this was 20, uh, he passed away in, in 2011. I said that, you know, being in film school and, and when you're doing script writing, they say that the characters have to be realistic. So if you have heroes with no flaws, that's not realistic. And and I, I made that analogy for my father because uh, very young, you know, I thought he was Superman. I really did. Um, he was a functioning alcoholic, okay. uh, but his the, the greatest attribute that he passed on to his boys was hard work. You know, you had to work. We spent spring breaks and summers, you know, either um, demolishing, you know, um, um, homes that were being renovated or um, doing work at, at, at he, he worked maintenance his whole career, you know, doing that. Or at you know he would have us in dumpsters, bro, getting uh, cardboard and aluminum cans, okay. and he would recycle. This was every week. That was his you know side money, and um, he grew up like I said. He was born in 1945, so all you know he he literally grows up in Jim Crow Alabama. Wow! But his attitude about people especially, you know, anyone, white people, Hispanic people that didn't look like him is, was the foundation that was, that was laid for me. 
And he was actually someone, honestly, Anthony, when he he was what they call the whole the happy drunk. Okay. So we almost looked forward to it, you know, when we were younger, because he would come home and and I didn't understand it. I, I mean, he he was always open that he he didn't. He was the oldest male child. His mother died when I think he was seven or eight. Uh, he again, this is rural Loxley, Alabama in the fifties. So there wasn't a choice for him to finish school. He had to drop out and work the fields, you know, for the other nine children. And I can't imagine what that was like until near the end of his life when I got to go back as a man and go back to where he was born and talk to some of his friends Mm -hmm. and understand, well, he had aspirations. He was a great athlete, but that, you know, the decision was made for him. And I think that some of that bitterness which was what led. Now, he says he started drinking at nine years old. So one thing, it was socially common for him, you know, the, the backwood moonshining and all of that. And the other thing is, I think he really lived for the weekend. I, I couldn't tell you that he actually enjoyed what he did, but this was his sense of re- he, he never. I mean, he would constantly hammer that in my head. When you're a man, your family is your responsibility. Mind you, I'm going to give you this picture, bro. I'm 10 years old and I'm making his drink. Right. (laughs) And he's telling me, you know, you put too much ginger ale in that. And so my wife is hysterical to her because we grew up so close, but so, you know, close in vicinity and proximity, but opposite family life. You know, she's like, if you look in the pantry now, bro, there's like, five two liters of Canada dry and she was like what is that <laughs> obsession I was like I grew into it because of making drinks for my dad uh-huh. and so he would sit there and have these adult conversations with his 10 year old son but he was really instilling you know some valuable lessons if you can get past the cigarette smoke and and the, and you know the new drink right uh, every two hours but you know the whole thing about you're responsible. I, I get up and go to work every day not because I enjoy it. You're my responsibility. I mean that was hammered over and over. And like I said, he he would usually come home in a very bad mood. You know I didn't understand until working with him older what he dealt with every day. But I my parents were not a good combination. I always say the best thing that came out of that marriage was my brothers and sisters. Other than that, that was a relationship that was, I mean, toxic is an understatement because she grew up very opposite of him in North Carolina, um, more closer to a lower middle class. Again, she's born in 41, but she, uh, her, my grandfather, her father was a deacon in the church. So she did not grow up around alcohol. And when she got introduced to it, she turned very violent. And so it was like they can't get along when they're not drinking and they sure as heck fire can't get along when they are drinking. He was very outspoken. He would say anything at any time. Like I said, more so he was more, a lot more calmer when he was drinking. But Anthony, it was nothing. Listen to me clearly. Nothing for him to be on the highway or on a side, on, 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 on a, on a avenue and someone to cut him off in traffic, he would chase them down and pull his gun. Wow. We grew up seeing that so many times. And what was, by the time we became teenagers, you know, he, mind you, 
you can understand, like I said, what the, the fallout of the family, what started changing in the neighborhood. Right. No fathers. So in, in my group of friends, I was the only one who uh, actually it was two of us, myself and Saul, who had a dad in the home. And so a lot of those guys from my team in our neighborhood would all come to our house. He became like everyone's dad, but he's the cool dad. See, they come there because they can drink. Right. But he's also a disciplinarian. And so to have them come running to me, you know, even when he would take guys to practice, even when I was already at school, because he was hoping that they would get scholarships, you know, and, and be able to get out of that neighborhood and have a friend come running to me like your dad, you know, ran this guy down and he, he kept his, uh, his 22 in a crown Royal bag, <laughs> the crown Royal <laughs> alcohol, that purple and gold bag. Yeah, I love it. So we always joke, we'll just say things like that now as, as grown men and everyone will crack up laughing because they know what we're talking about. And he's like, he, he, you know, he runs the guy off the road and he's waving his gun. It was like him at this in today's society, bro, it would never work. I, I came to the conclusion uh, later in his life. I was like, he was never intended to leave Alabama because it never left him. He thought he could just do what he did in the back roads of Alabama in the city, in the metropolitan <laughs> city of uh, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, another thing that stood out about him what, so the the domestic abuse was was horrible. Okay, you know, on my mom and like I said, she would internalize everything in it, and then when she drank, it would all come out. Yeah, and so a lot of times she would pick fights with him, and so it, it definitely wasn't a one sided situation. My earliest memory, I think, on you know, in my life was I, I had to be about two and a half, three years old. And it's my dad holding my brother. We're, we're almost exactly two years apart in one arm and my mom slicing him under his arm with a butcher's knife. Wow. And in retaliation, he almost cut off the bottom of her left earlobe. And so you can imagine the trauma that does to at that point, the oldest two sisters have moved out. So it's four of us there. And can you imagine the trauma that caused? And I remember the police and the paramedics coming and, and this is going to start, I think my, um, my appreciation and the honor for law enforcement was started at such an early age because they removed, they didn't want us to see him being handcuffed, hmm. you know, in, in front of his children. So they, you know, took him over to the neighbor's house and then to come back, they would come back. So the next day, bro, I literally remember waking up. You know, your dad has all type of bandages, you know, under his arm. And of course, a scar that never went away. And your mom's ear is wrapped up and they're sitting at the table eating breakfast like nothing happened. Yeah. 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 And totally starts to screw up, you know, your reality right. of what right. you think is normal. Yeah. And and it, it's just it's wild, too, to hear you tell that story, because you know, again, on the law enforcement side of things, it gets so frustrating for yes. the, the people, for the officers, because they see this type of stuff. And then, like you said, the next day, everything's okay. Um, yes. nothing happens at court, but it, yes. it's really, it, there's so much involved in that. The police are coming in, they're trying to put a bandaid on something that is, uh, possibly irreversibly broken outside of, yes. you know, you know, God 
doing a miracle. And, right. and, and it's like, it, it just, after a while, just like it wears on the kids in the situation, it wears on the, yep. on the officers as well. But man, it's just so interesting. The dichotomy that you saw in your, in your dad, how important he was to shaping you into who you are, uh, today. Um, but also how flawed he was and, and those things that he did that brought so much kind of heartache into your life too. And it kind of, it, it makes me want to ask you about that situation of fathers in the homes and, and yeah. the, the huge problem, uh, you know, in my opinion and, and in my experience, working in a primarily black and Latino area, the lack mm-hmm. of fathers was astronomical. Um, yes. And, and, and I would say across the board, whether, you know, I arrested uh, white, white people, you know, white guys, yep. black guys, Latino guys, one of the main things, and I would say probably 90% of the time or even more was a lack of fathers. Their fathers were either in prison, their fathers yep. were either dead, they're, they didn't yep. know their fathers. Know their father, yep. right. And so when you're talking about your father and the fact that he was one of maybe two in your group of friends, I mean, that's, that's incredible. Exactly. And we're talking about 10 guys, you know, that all grew up in that, na- you know, in that neighborhood. And like, for example, Elliot Holmes, you know, uh, we met in pre-first. Um, and now in his case, his father was in his life, but, you know, was, was not, you know, in the home. And so it is, it's, it's not, I don't think that it's enough, Anthony, to say that it's a major problem. It is the problem. Okay. It is the number one issue of the problems in any community. Like you said, when you look at a breakdown of community, what, regardless of what the ethnic background is, when the man is not there, and again, it's become very vogue today to try to deny that after 60 years of data shows us the opposite. Right. And you get these, what I call wokeites, you know, on every program and they continually want to deny it because to me, they don't want to fix the problem because as Booker T. Washington said, then they won't get money. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I talk, you know, with, with my dad, I mean, he was clear. Now you literally, like you said, you have all of this chaos in the home. A couple of lessons though came out of this, like you said, uh, with his flaw. Every, so that was the first um, police incident. Like I said, that's the first thing that I can even, that's the first thing I can remember, earliest memory I have uh, in my life. You're talking about, <laughs> Medea makes the joke that, the, that, that men like my dad kind of died out with the 70s where when the police come, they literally don't act a fool. You know, they don't play, you know, try to, um, you know, um, uh, lure the cops in to getting, you know, some, t- you know, to get the case thrown out and fight the police. They literally open the door, <laughs> welcome the cops and literally just take the handcuffs. And that's what he was. Hmm. He would literally, he knows what he did. And, and that's, and he would talk to me about it when he got home. I was wrong. You know, I did this and he would hammer the fact you bear my name. You will do this. You will be great. You will bring honor. So it was never. So, you know, you're talking about a kid coming from this environment who's like student of the month every other month that had been student of the year in elementary school like three times because 
you know, like you, you, I, I was just with my pastor earlier today and he was like his dad, his mom, all his mom had to say is wait until your dad got home. So to me, it was never a question to go to school and act out and to act up because he made it clear. And like I said, this was from a, a, a young kid to a, a teenager at 18 years old. The police will be the safest place for you to be if you embarrass me. When you take that element out of the home and out of the community, you get the results you know, that, that we're having. And, and it was not only that he didn't take it from us, he didn't take it from the friends. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, like we said, his, his biggest problem, and he, he did not come to the Lord until I'm, I'm talking about two minute warning. Where you say fourth quarter, I'm like two minutes left in the game. He he was on his, you know, this was like months left in his life. Wow. But wow. he, the, like you said, when you think about it, the, the character and the hard work was there. Mm -hmm. The failure was Christ was not the head of him. So therefore it could not be the head of our house. And the the so that's the number one criticism and two was that when you see i mean you can imagine with as many police incidents as i could share with you you know at some point it was called you know it's children's services now but it was called hrs then so we had been in various counseling situations counseling for us as alone as the children then counseling for my parents counseling as a family and they would plead with him you have to remove what the problem is Mm -hmm. The problem comes with the alcohol, right? But the addiction was so strong that it, it was almost, it was eerie for me, bro. When I heard that, when I saw the documentary on Chris Farley and when he's struggling with alcoholism and drugs and they're talking to his dad and he was, he basically blew it off and was like, he has the problem. Why do I have to change? Hmm. I'm not going to remove the alcohol from my life. That was what my dad was. He could listen to whatever the police had to say whatever the social services had to say until it came to the alcohol. And he may do that for a week. He may do it for two weeks, but eventually it's going to come back to that. And then he would always invite my mother to join him. Although knowing this never ends well, if I, if, yeah. I, if you know, again, you, you know what I do and the, but to paint the picture for you, to give you the visual, you know, imagine mid eighties, you know, so this 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 is a black family. So it's Friday night. Michael Jackson Thriller album is on <laughs> literally the album before CDs. You know, your parents are, you know, you got a glove that's not a Michael Jackson glove. It's actually an usher's glove from church, <laughs> but it's white. It'll do. And it's seven o'clock and you're dancing and moonwalking. Everyone's having a good time. But in two hours or three, the probability that the police are going to be there and my mom is going to be assaulted, and that's why they're there, is very high. Wow. We lived like that basically every weekend that my mom was off. Because she, my dad was, you know, Monday through Friday. My mom, it fluctuated for her. So she had, I believe, like two weekends off a month. That's when we knew it was the most volatile time. Because no matter how well the evening started, it was going to end with us traumatized with, you know, uh, if the cops and every time the cops were not called. But there was if there wasn't violence, there was definitely going to be threat of violence and a lot of, you know, yelling and, and arguing. Right. That that was the norm. Right. And he did not take the role of the strong man to remove that and do what he needed to do. 
And so by the time um, I, I actually, right after I graduated, they stayed together. And, and, and again, I say that, but they were separated for three years while I was in middle school or two and a half. And again, this goes back to, like you said, the flawed character. There was no question with him, bro. He made it plain. My mom could go. The boys do not. Okay. That's his responsibility. And my mom didn't push back on it. So he literally went from, you know, you had an intact family household to now it's just us. And actually my older sister stayed too. So three, three kids went with my mom, the three youngest stayed uh, with my dad. And the reason why those three went with her, because again, from the dysfunctional family, two of the three, I, I should say two went with her, were already adults now with their own children. They had already wrecked their lives. So now mm-hmm. they have to move back yeah. home. Yeah. Home with children. Wow. Six of them. Wow. So, yeah, th- this this highlights what we're talking about in the community. Right. Right. How the dysfunction that cancer, you know, spread. So my dad literally would be up at he, this was the pattern, bro. He gets home. Cook dinner. Probably starts drinking during dinner uh, by 11 o'clock. He's passed out of his rocking chair and he's, you know, either on the couch or on the floor. He would never drop the cup, though. He'd fall out of the chair, but hang on to the cup. <laughs> and six o'clock in the morning, he's back up in the shower going to work. Wow. Yeah. Like clockwork. Yeah. By the time, though, that 96 that I graduated, it had run its complete course. And remember, I told you this went both ways. It wasn't always him. My mom would do a lot of things. She could be violent as well. And actually, the last incident where the courts finally stepped in, I'm at Bible study. My sister, this is pagers because this is before, you know, it was common for people to have cell phones. My pagers going off. I run into the pastor's office. I'm like, what is the problem? And she's like, you got to come home. Uh, Mom's being arrested. And I'm like, oh, God. Mind you, three years before that, I already, you know, got had to bail my dad out at 16. So I can't even sign for him. But I'm the only one that has his wallet. And so I get home and he's outside talking to the neighbor. She picks up a knife. Mm-hmm. His back is turned. My brother yells out, look out. She's literally trying to stab him in the back with a butcher's knife. Remember, I told you about the knives. So right. he would pick up a gun. She would pick up a knife. Um, and the, this when the court. So, of course, my mom goes to jail. I get her out the next day. And she did come back to the house. Of course, you can imagine it's tense. And but by Sunday. They're acting like nothing has happened. Yeah. But this time, you know, he said he didn't want to press charges, but the, the, the county did. Right. And so when she went before the judge, the plea would be that it would be no jail time, but someone has to leave the dwelling because in court, they said in the 24 years or 23 years that my parents had been together, there were over 30 calls of domestic violence. Wow. Wow. Where the police were actually called out. Yeah. Uh, and, and a couple of those weren't even actually, there were more than that because sometimes they came because, you know, she had drank so much and passed out and we just called nine one one. So this is how dysfunctional that was. And it was never, it, you know, the sadness, you know, the tragedy of it is it was never fixed. It literally, you know, it destroyed the, it destroyed the family. It right. really did. Yeah. So, and, and obviously, you know, you, you've talked about it, you shared here that those, the things that were going on in your home, uh, definitely brought about 
interaction that you had with the police. Correct. What what was that like as as a young man growing up and having that constant interaction with the police? What was general your your general view of the police? Like what did they represent to you? Did they did they represent help to you or did they represent just heartache, problem, nastiness? Like what what did that represent to you? Uh, they represented help and heroes. And and so that's, uh, you know, it, it'll lead us to, of course, the whole mission, you know, behind I, I didn't have a choice when he gets to the heart of the matter to do what I'm doing now with Support Our Shields, because I was like, I can't take this. This this is this hatred of police is taught because remember what I told you, it, as dysfunctional as this household was, neither one of my parents never blamed law enforcement. You know, they if they but, you know, the G.I. Joe saying no one is only half the battle. They just were not willing to make the changes to fix the issues and actually turn to Christ to be the head to abide in so that the issues could be fixed. But I grew up, you know, one of my favorite shows was Chips. Mm-hmm. I'm taking you back. <laughs> SWAT. Hawaii Five-0. So that was actually the first thing I ever wanted to be was a cop because, again, cops were not hated. They were not talked down about, you know, in my home. Actually, they weren't in the community at large at that time. You know, this is something we've seen grow, you know, over the last 30 years. And I, I, I you know, you know, we'll get into that, I think, very intentionally. But the the shows that I, you know, that I watch, uh, the cartoon, I don't know if you remember this one, Cops. Uh, fighting crime in the future time. I had all the action figures. Uh-huh. Bulletproof was my favorite. Uh, so th- this was just normal to me. And like I said, because A, my parents never made them the enemy, subconsciously or consciously, B, the interaction that I had. We had Officer Billy, who actually cut hair on the side. And that's actually where I met him first. He, w- he was actually cutting my hair when I was very small, but he would ride through the community, you know, pull over and talk to us. Uh, and because of the the that when the crime started rising in the community, that's when you would see like the raiders and the narcs like kicking down crack house doors, and we would be cheering. Yeah. <laughs> also running in the house. Right. But it was like because if this is not done, you literally have people fighting in the middle of the street trying to rob a crackhead or a crackhead trying to rob someone. Like I said, bro, this was this was scary stuff. I literally. Right. We don't know what he OD'd on, but I was like 11 years old. My brother and I, you know, my dad is not home, which is the reason why we were down at the bus stop in the first place. We were out of the gate playing and and the guy across the street just drops dead. And we went back two years ago and my brother and I, you know, retold the story at the spot. And so any innocence that we had left, you know, from what we were growing up with definitely went out of the window that day. You watch the guy drop dead in front of you. We just saw him fall. We didn't know he was dead. And we ran home and got our mom. You know, this is a nurse's aide and she comes down. He has no pulse. And then the cops come and, you know, the yellow sheet is over him. And we're like, what is going on? So when you have all of the crime around you and like I said, they're doing their best. So when when we would see the police show up, you know, this is that we're actually relieved. And and then personally in our family. I have a birthday coming up uh, in a in a couple of weeks, 
And we 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 didn't do much about my birthday. And remember, I told you my my brother is is we're almost we're four days short from being born on the same day. Oh wow! Two okay. years apart. Okay. We never really celebrated birthdays much because of the trauma with the birthday in '85. And so I'll give you I'll give you what was going on in in, in history, and you'll be you'll, it'll bring it back to you. Uh, my mom at that time worked the graveyard shift. So she worked 11 at night to seven in the morning retirement home. Okay. And my dad, they had already been arguing and we were supposed to have our, you know, birthday party that Sunday. My dad comes home later than what he used to, because he would take her to work at, you know, 10 30, 10 15. He's back at 11 15. He comes and he says, well, I'm going to give you your gifts now. Bro, that's all you got to tell me. Right. It's like, you know, I'm like nine years old. I got uh, 18. You know, that okay. was big then. And the black van and, and my brother got Knight Rider. And we're playing, you know, we're just living it up. Dad let us open our toys early. My older two sisters are crying. And we're like, what's wrong with you? And they said, you didn't hear what he said. He said, I'm going to let you open up your gifts. That's all we, we stopped there. The other part was because I may be locked up tomorrow. Mm. And so they immediately went to where is our mom? Again, I'm eight, nine years old, bro. I was like, okay, I'm back to getting B.A. Baracus. I'm back in the van. I'm playing with it. Eventually we fall asleep. Three o'clock in the morning, my my, um, older sister Monica is shaking me to get up. Uh, the, The police are shining lights. Uh, in in our bedroom, and they've come in the room. They're ushering us out, um, and and one of them picks up my brother, and they're taking me past our parents' room, but they're trying to keep us safe. They have guns drawn on my dad because he's completely dressed but under the covers. Okay, and they know because of his history that he has guns and he'll use it. They were there because he had thrown my mother out of the car on um i-95 wow and um another couple picked her up and she called the police and so you know this is what we're what i'm talking about when we say you know heroes and help right you know so that's why when these narratives are changed it bothers me so much because i'm like do you understand what their training was and what they were trying to do to help us they didn't ask (laughs) you guys didn't ask to be put in that situation you're just answering a call. Yeah. Bro, this is in 85. Right. I, this would go on until 96. Wow. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting about what you're about what you're saying Hollywood is what was being to- talked about in the home and and yes. what the the example being said. In other words, you know, the police their guns drawn on your dad but yes. still like a, 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 a level of respect being taught yes. in the home toward yes. the police. And, exactly. and, and that is like, I'm telling you, that is, I, I go into homes all the time where, where that is like completely lacking. We, exactly. like we walk in and we're the enemy, even though you, the, may minute have, you step in the, door. Yeah, the minute you step in the door and the minute you step in the door, not only are you getting a problem from the person who is the problem, but you're getting a problem from the person who is the victim. Exactly. And, and, and it's, it's like, it, it is what is being taught and drilled into these kids 
that the police are the enemy. Yes. And and so even at that night, um, you know, we went to uh, live with my older, that, that oldest sister, okay. you know, the one I was saying who was married. So this is before the drug problems hit. We went to live with her for a week, but I never forgot the officer as they're putting us in, you know, cause they were called, they had to come to the house to get us. And, and he's like, your dad, I'm not, your dad is not an evil guy. You know, they have problems. And he was like, you're going to be okay. So those are the, again, that's the part that's never played by the media. Right. Those, com- those conversations. <laughs> Intentionally. Yep. Yes. Yeah. The, the, yeah. You're, you're right. The, those, those like very, um, I mean, there's no other word for it, but intimate conversations, the police yes. are interacting with people, both suspects, yes. victims, children, like these are very like powerful, intimate moments. And the police are in those moments and, and doing the best that they can. Do they make mistakes? Right. Absolutely. Without, yeah. and a lot of times, brother, they don't know the background. Right. Like I said, you guys get a call and now again, by uh, probably, you know, at that point in time and you get different departments, see, because right. Fort Lauderdale police may show up or Broward BSO, Broward County Sheriff's Office may show up. It all depends, you know, how how the calls, what's going on that night, uh, that particular time. And so on top of that, uh, as I got older, again, I think some, you know, if you if you had a, a, an officer that came that had pre previous knowledge right you know then there is some familiarity with the thing and like i said my my dad's behavior wasn't all that uncommon we called him the poor horseman you had him mr guyton or mr willie james who was the neighbor in the duplex mr lane who was two houses down and mr johnson they were guys brother that didn't take any crap they they you know were the enforcers in the neighborhood but watch what i'm going to tell you but see they they made like this silent deal that as long as crack wasn't given to their kids and, and until that crack house was burned down. And I told you that's still a mystery. <laughs> but why would you let it be there that long? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The, the These were all stand up men, we thought, but all domestic abusers. This is what. So it wasn't just my dad. This is normal. I tell people it wasn't until I met and I didn't know they were going to end up being my in-laws at the time. My wife's parents, this is in the eighth grade. And I I started working for a dad. He was a community leader. He owned a pharmacy in the community. And 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 when I talk about him, I also point out when they were robbed and a gun was put to his head, that wasn't white supremacy, you know, since that's so popular, you know, in in the national conversation as an excuse. It was people from our own neighborhood. My wife's car was stolen from the pharmacy. My car was stolen for, from the pharmacy. Yeah, that, that wasn't white supremacists doing that. I think. Right. But they were the first couple because you can understand my family is so dysfunctional. M- my dad didn't have, he only had one sister that lived in Florida. She's a professional. Why is she going to keep coming around and bringing my cousin, her only child in that environment? Right. Uh, my mom had a lot of family that relocated to South Florida from North Carolina. But again, my dad would threaten them, too. So by the time I got into my teenage years and, and she had six brothers and this was a constant back and forth because no no brother wants to see his, his sister mistreated. For sure. But then if she goes back. to then what can you do? Like you said, it's the same thing. Right. You know, she doesn't want to press charges. You know, so it becomes an ongoing cycle. You know what people do, Anthony? They remove themselves from the situation. Correct. So I really didn't grow up 
with any a lot of family coming around cousins because of my parents. And then eventually their friends that used to come around stopped coming because, again, it always starts off. The drinks are flowing. The music dad is the you know unofficial DJ and everyone is having this, you know, what seems a scene. That's why the Medea stuff is funny to me because I'm like, <laughs> I lived it. But it looks like that, but it's not going to end happy like that does. Right. And so everyone just said, you know, your parents are basically a-holes, you know, and we're not going to continue to come around to that. So it wasn't until um, literally my wife's uh, parents, like literally like a pseudo adopted me because I would babysit um, her sister's uh, boys as a teenager. And like I said, I was working for him at the pharmacy. He just took an interest in me. And they had season tickets to the Miami Heat. So you can imagine what, how that opened my eyes. Oh, yeah. This is a family that lives six blocks from you in the same community. So for them, you know, to see Jordan in person because they're taking me to games. But more importantly, they were the first black couple that I saw that domestic violence that I was around so much that it wasn't the norm. Gotcha. Think about that. Yeah. That's incredible. I, yeah. You're growing up thinking that's normal, and yes, yeah, because see what happens out of that, Anthony. Again, this, and this this contributes to the conversation about the social problems at large. When you come out of that, that's normal. So guess what? Your sister marries an abuser as well, right? Ah, and then the next sister does it. You see what I'm saying? And and it was uh, it wasn't on the level of my parents, but this it's all around you. The third sister marries someone that again. Now by the time you know. We're young adults, my brother and I. Now the cycle is repeating itself. I'm trying to keep him from, you know, he he's literally gone to my sister's house and dragged one dude out of the bed and was going to do it to another one. And I was like, but look at the cycle. Right. Where is she? She's back there and she's she's threatening to call the police on you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think most most people don't have like that's not even in their um, repertoire of of being able to understand that Correct. world and that in, environment. Um, Correct. And uh, you know, you know, talking to you, I didn't grow up that way, but I I yes. know exactly what you're talking about because you yes. know I've been in um, in those situations as a police officer, and it's just um, yeah, it just there's there's no. The way people react to that is normal, but people that are dealing with trauma and reacting, having normal reactions to it, sometimes those normal reactions just continue the cycle. Um, yeah, and it, they it's, absolutely it, it, do. It's it's understandable, but at the same time, there's that personal responsibility piece to it. Um, oh, you said a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> but I just what what's so interesting about your story, Hollywood, is you. Your dad, like one thing I thought of when you were talking about your dad is, is he was a flawed man. And a lot of what we have right now, the cycle has progressed and continued to get worse and worse to now we have flawed boys, not men, boy, they're, they're, they're having kids. They're not even, they're not even staying in the home. They're just leaving. They don't even know what kids they have. Um, yeah. moms that have multiple babies, daddies, and it, it's, yeah. it has progressed. Um, that cycle of trauma has progressed and yes. the social justice movement and BLM, um, yep. has not helped. It has done no. nothing for the community. 
No, and 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 to be honest, you know that's that's why if if we were doing video, you would see the marquee I have behind me says the greatest lie, uh, greatest lie ever sold. Because I think that documentary is so powerful for exposing the lies and the false narratives, and they, it was never intended to. And so, and literally, like I said, they they a part of this whole movement, bro, was well, you have to elevate, you have to elevate black voices. Well, but only some black voices, because a voice like mine, they, they can't discredit. I grew up in all of the situations that they're saying are the excuses. And yet when you don't fit the narrative, then you become the Uncle Tom, all the other names that, I, <laughs> right. that I've been called. Right. And what's so interesting, too, is I've actually heard people say so like they'll hear um, someone like you speak uh, against you know, the social justice movement, woke ideology, BLM. And without knowing your story, they'll say, I've, I've actually heard people say, well, he, he hasn't lived the true black experience. And I'm like, excuse me, what does that mean? What what does that mean? (laughs) You know? (laughs) And, and, And then, and that's, and that's another thing that, that really burns me up with this whole shift from equality to equity. Mm. See, it was really subtle how Kamala did that, bro. But it's, there's a huge difference between those because in the six siblings, what I can share with you is that everyone, when you come out of a, a family where substance abuse is the norm, it seems every child has some type of addictive behavior. Okay. It just it manifested in di- in different ways. So we have alcohol in in the, in the siblings. You have alcohol. You have you have you know over the counter drugs. You have sex. You have work. I, I fell under the work. Literally, you know, having to seek you know professional help. Like, okay, you have at one point. This is ten years ago. You have twenty accounts, but you're upset that you didn't get the other two. Mm-hmm. You know, but you have a now ex wife who feels completely abandoned because your whole identity is lost and I have to get the next account. Right. You know, it was and, and it was explained to me. It's like, you know, when they went through my whole family, it's like, wow, do you realize each one of you has some type of addictive, you know, behavior? And, you know, like we said, coming out of, of that situation until you want to address it and take personal responsibility, you know, and the steps to actually change then it's not going to change. Yeah, it's 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 just a a really uh interesting to to the personal responsibility side of it that was that was yes. um you yes. know impressed upon you by your dad who if if there was anyone who could have grown up with a victim mentality your dad growing up in the Jim Crow South who actually yes. would have witnessed and been oppressed and seen oppression yeah. he had a completely different viewpoint and mindset than you know the majority uh, well i don't want to say the majority of our country uh, the the loud minority of our country yes. who who yes who think that having some sort of victim status is how you get ahead in in life and it and it's a lie it's a lie sold right it them. is a lie and and it's when you expose it and that's what we're learning because it's about power that's that's the whole cultural Marxist movement about power. I'll, I'll give you another thing. It, it was him and also my father-in-law. Actually, um, my wife and I did not reconnect. We did reconnect as he was ill, but 
uh, we did not marry until years after he passed away. So he never got the chance. We, we, we joke about this often. We think about him because uh, his birthday is, would be the 27th of this month. So uh, literally you have all of us in the line in November and he was the same way. This is someone who went, you know, like I said, was born in the late thirties, uh, went to the army, went to Florida A&M for pharmacy. And this is someone who is practicing as a pharmacist in the 60s. Wow. Literally in Fort Lauderdale at that point when him and my dad. So our fathers actually knew each other, okay. you know, before we were born. But of course, they didn't run in the same circles, understandably. Right. Uh, but they, they literally grew up in a time where there was a certain area of Fort Lauderdale they weren't allowed to be in after dark. Okay. So how do I make an excuse where I can go anywhere I want? My, like I said, you have to take the, and, and yet they still her neither one of her parents, they, they never instilled in her that she was a victim and all white people were bad. And it was the same uh, for my dad. I, I got a story for you. We, we were on vacation. Now, again, like you said, think about where I'm telling you how we grew up. Right. And see, this is, this is something that's also hidden because remember, it's about money and it's about power. Now, with everything I'm telling you, this is also the family that still, bro, I think before I got to high school, I had been to Disney like five times. Wow. I was sick of Disney <laughs> and, and uh, I prefer Bush Gardens. We've been there like five times. And like I said, if he could remove the alcohol and the, and the money that came from court fees and fines from the re- issues related to the alcohol and invested it, we would have been homeowners and the things that, you know, what we're what we learn about the American dream and, and passing things on, right? Right. So we're on vacation. I'm probably five years old, and we're in the pool. And you can imagine growing up there. There's really no one with a pool, so you get in the pool. With, and and you know what? That park that I told you about, Bass Park, had a pool, but there's always shooting going on there. So you read, <laughs> no one went to the pool, uh, and we're in the pool. I said, I'm a little guy and a, a, a white man and his kid got in the pool. And I turned to my dad and said, why are those honkies getting in the pool? Where did I learn that from? Right. The Jeffersons, you know, the, and I mean, he snatched me out of the pool, bro, sat me on the side and said, don't you ever say that again. This a white man is the reason why we go on vacations like we do because he's my boss. That's why you have food on the table. You don't know those people. So don't you dare ever let that come out of your mouth. Now, mind you, this is the same guy who that night was probably passed out on the floor. So like we said, the complications, but there were so many critical lessons that he taught me. And and, and for us, then it went on. So I wasn't in school, uh, or that was probably going the summer before starting school. So remember, I, I'm born in 76. We're the busing, you know, so our generation, you know, it's, it's like the first, you know, when the busing starts in the late 60s, early 70s. Gotcha. So for me, this was extremely positive because my elementary school is in Oakland Park. And so this was and so this is why someone like Joe Biden bothers me with that. Our schools are going to become a racial jungle. Remember, you know, that he tries to gloss over now and the media wants to forget all of his racist comments during integration yeah. because 
it opened the door without that, Anthony. I don't have an opportunity to actually interact with kids who don't look like me. Needless to say, I didn't see white people in our neighborhood until my sister got in high school. And like I said, the type of man my dad was, it was nothing for she had white friends that would spend the night. So we just weren't raised, you know, like we said, if we right. could remove the substance out, it, you know, he had it. He he just now get, you know, again, the, the people that he's going to want to associate with, no matter what color you were you were, were going to be people who love to drink. That's the downside of it, but he wasn't racist. <laughs> yeah. You just have to love to drink and fight. And, and he was good with you. So that elementary school experience is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm five years old. My best friend is Richard Street. Never forgot him. He's a little white kid. Didn't, we didn't look at color like kids don't do until they're taught, you know, to do that. Right. So um, by the time I get into fourth grade, third grade, um, little league football, one of the class moms. And like I said, I, I had a bunch of moms, bro. Uh, Amber, T- uh, Amber Tidwell's mom in kindergarten. You know, she was like, why don't you eat? Well, I had never been in a public school like environment. I'm like, this doesn't taste like my mom's food. So she would bring food <laughs> to the cafeteria for me. And she was, you know, she would just take care. So when I, you know, I'm a grown man, I would see her. I would call her mom. Um, this was the experiences, you know, that I had. And so the flyer that I brought home to my dad was for uh, a football team, low league football. Of course, I love football. My dad loved football. You know, he's from Alabama. So, you know, it's one or two. It's Auburn, or Alabama. It was Alabama. Um, he taught me about Bear Bryant when I was five years old. Bear Bryant, you know, died in 82, not long after. And that just that planted the seed of the love of Alabama football for me. Right. Okay. And so um, when that flyer comes home and I'm like, Dad, I'm, you know, it's a flyer, it's a football team. I, I want to play. The name of the team is Northeast Rebels. <laughs> now, <laughs> I didn't catch the Rebels part in that, but I'm, I'm going to give you the visual of the Ole Miss uh, Rebels before we change the mascot. <laughs> so you got you to gotta flow with me, bro. We go. My dad's like, okay, we're going to sign up for football, tackle football, and we arrived there again. This is in Oakland Park. So this is this is this might as well be another world from us. This is 35 minutes away, but literally another world. And we get to the field house, bro, and there's a Confederate flag. <laughs> it's just right on the top of it. And again, because of my dad, he didn't blink. It just didn't. And I was not raised that way. He was like, he always, it seems like it, it's more than he, he, he would talk about the Civil War. And my, I would sit there with him and my grandfather, his father talking about it. And they were like, and, and it tied into a lot of what W.E.B., uh, not W.E.B. there was, I'm sorry. The opposite. I, lo- I lost his name just that quick. Oh, that's all right. Oh, it, it'll come back to me. It, it'll come back to me. But. We get there, and, and again, I grew up, bro, if it wasn't Chips, it was Dukes of Hazard. Right. It didn't, you know, you love the story, the General Lee. We didn't feel like we were a victim. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, again, if that's, not in, if that's not instilled in you, it's amazing how um, Booker T. Washington was the name. Of, and if you see Uncle Tom, too, they go into how one thing was presented 
as this is what is going on every day. And my dad even shared with me. It was not. Yeah, there were places, of course, it was by law. He was not allowed to go. Yet this was how off the laws was. He was like, we still we didn't go to school with any white kids, but we worked in the fields together. Right. You see what I'm saying? We were friends, but we can't go to the we can't go into the movie theater. I got to go upstairs and they can go downstairs. But people were still people. You know, the relationships were, 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 you know, were still there. There were people at in control at the top who wanted the division, which is exactly what we see today. And so we get there. Like I said, it never dawned on me. Now, there were other there were a few black kids on, you know, you know, how little league is it's the different weight classes. And so there's three. And, um, you know, of course, 11, uh, uh, 10 years old. This is yeah, 11. This is the, the C team, the, the smallest kid. Uh-huh. And I'm the only black kid. And you understand, like you said, from your experience, when you play football in the hood, that's a whole different <laughs> That's a different dynamic. You're playing on asphalt without pads. Right. So when you get pads in a controlled environment, you just unleashed Bobby Boucher on these other kids. Because <laughs> <I love that. laughs> I'm, I'm used to playing with older kids and getting, you know, lit up. So now you put me on an even weight class and, bro, I'm laying people out right. when we get in pads. And uh, that, a, a kid, cheap shot, he speared me. And he stood over me and said, take that, you N-word. Okay. And so you can imagine being the only black kid, and, and some of the kids were egging him on. And I'll never forget Coach Tim Frazier. I reached out to him years ago and thanked him. He snatches this kid up before I can get off the ground. I mean, reads him the riot act, and every kid that encouraged them, he just sends them running. They just spend the rest of the day running. Now... My first year, again, these are things I don't understand as an 11-year-old, bro. My dad stayed at practice every day. Okay. He didn't drop me off. But again, he's, he wants to make sure everything is okay. And so he's coming out on the field. <laughs> and he would later choke out one of my coaches, but it wasn't for that. <laughs> but he's coming out on the field and he's hot. Right. And, and, and coach runs over there and talks to him. And... um you know, he's like, if that's how they're going to play, then then I'll teach him to play that way. And he's hot and we're driving home. He's still hot about it. We get home. He's telling my mom about it. And this is the, the reason why I share this story so much is because it's it's the good that comes out of it, bro. Before. And so my dad is asking me, he's like, do you want to go play for another team? Do you want to play for the team? You know, basically in our community where the black kids are, right. if this is how you're going to be treated. Before we could finish dinner, not only did that coach call, I believe five of the other fathers from that team called to apologize and to uh, basically plead with my dad not to pull me off the yeah. team. Yeah. These are the stories that don't get shared. Right. And I think what's so powerful about, I mean, it's, it's such a simple story, but it's a really powerful story, Hollywood. Yes, and I think it is. It, it, and yes. I, I think what makes it powerful and 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 what needs to be brought into this conversation is just that there there are people who are evil and racist in this yes. country. There there yes. are there are cops who are racist. Uh, you know, yes. I'm not afraid to say that. There there's any any job any any employer has people that work for them that are racist, but it's an individual heart and sin issue. 
And when you Absolutely. start saying it's a systemic issue, you right. you demonize, especially when it comes to law enforcement. And and this is what what I felt so strongly in 2020 when we were dealing with BLM and yes. and all that crap. I it 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 was so disheartening, discouraging, demoralizing for Absolutely. officers to be told over and over again that they were racist when people basically what what that means is that people put themselves in the place of God to determine the heart issues of people they didn't even know and that's yes, evil absolutely and when you systemically Idiot. say you know when you say law enforcement is systemically racist i i can't tell you how angry that makes me it, it, you you yep. are demonizing an entire group of people that literally yes. are willing to go out to every day life. and yes. do things that the general public does not even understand, has no concept or would do or would, or do, would do or has any concept of what is going on in some of these communities. And we can Correct. talk about the issues of why that isn't everything, but it's just, it's such a demoralizing thing. And I think it's, it's a powerful story because, Hey, this kid, yeah, maybe he wasn't even a racist. Maybe he didn't even know what the word meant. No, but I, I don't think. Oh, I'll, I'll answer he that was. for you. He was not. We we went on to go to the same high school oh, really? and went to Mexico together. And I mean, he's watching my back in Mexico because I'm a super minority <laughs> there. So that's why I love to share the story because I'm like the ending is the part that people have to catch. And by five years later, so I played Little League five years all the way until you know uh, by the time high school it was of course on to high school, but he literally, uh, by the time, so I, I go from being the only kid, the only black kid on that team to five years later, over half the team is black. Most of them don't live in that area and we're playing in the championship. Bro, you have black people with Confederate flags. <laughs> it was amazing. I, I'm, I'm trying to reconnect with some of those guys to be like, who has footage of this? Because I would be the one to run out with the flag. Okay. You know who had the problem? The other team okay. that we played. And I was like, but you don't understand the, what the love that these guys, the, these young boys learn to have for each other. Me and my brother still talk about it fondly today because he still lives in South Florida. He runs into people, you know, from time to time. And of course, they're like, where's Hollywood? But you, you know, you went, these coaches, bro. And that's, that's so that was the second interaction. Because Ira Rubenstein wasn't a coach, but he uh, he basically in his off duty time was doing security. Okay. So he was because at that time again the, the the influx two things I think you had this whole thing with people starting to gamble on little league games like what degenerate does that <laughs> and uh, you you started to get the the you know the 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 uh, agent parent involved that you know like we're seeing now this whole fighting referees and fighting coaches. Right. This was starting back then. So this this was a team that, you know, I mean, my dad paid up probably three times more than what he would have for us to play for the, the team in our in our community. But he was so impressed by the people and how well it was organized. And when I tell you, you know, I was uh, captain and sportsman of the year for four consecutive years, all of those coaches, Anthony, and that and that police officer, Ira Rubenstein. They always came up to me and, sh and shook my hand, mm -hmm. you know, before we would talk. 
and would have me address the team when I, that was that, uh, see a part of that foundation, you know, so my dad, you know, and the failures at home, but then I had coaches who expected and told me they expected. These were the people who were coming over to check on us after another, you know, incident with my parents and they don't live in my neighborhood yeah they you know they would actually call my dad it was funny because we went to the championship twice and so they would come to every kid's house and leave a yard sign and they were like making sure my dad because of the reputation <laughs> that he knew that we were coming they didn't want us to be left out right you know even though we didn't live uh in in the community and that would transfer so that was the northeast rebels we practiced on the high school northeast high schools football field. So I literally just elevated from little league. And then, you know, you're still being bused to high school, to that high school. And it was the same thing again, not in the sense of an incident, but it was the narrative that coach who I I was able to reconnect with uh, last year. And he's one of the videos that I, that I did about who mentored me all, you know, through, I, I literally, literally had other coaches telling my dad, Anthony, don't let him go to Northeast. The coaches are racist. Stick is a racist. Hmm. They're already trying to plant this in my head before I step on the field. My sister was the team manager the year before, and she was the one who dispelled that. Okay. And again, this is someone who I just, you know, uh, went out to visit uh, last Friday and, and to be able to, you know, to go to dinner with he and his wife. Now, I, when I tell you, you know, he was also the uh, strength and conditioning and the weightlifting coach, bro. He looked out for me like they didn't have kids. Again, here it is. Like I was his own son to the fact that he got fired my sophomore year. This this is who I share in the video. He's the one that comes up to me, you know, sophomore year. Um, and he says, you're the captain. You sp- you address the student body going forward. This is your team. I'm like, you realize I'm 16, right? <laughs> right? And he's like, you're ready. I don't care. Um, he gets fired after that. And he becomes a defensive coordinator at one of the most prestigious private schools in South Florida, Pinecrest. He and his wife worked behind the scenes. I was offered a full ride my junior year. Okay. I only stayed at Northeast because the relationship with my TV production teacher, Sandy Melillo, and her husband, another family that adopted me, the Melillos, is Italian, little, little Italians. And, and I was, so at this time, the Hollywood part had really taken off, and I'm starting to win these video competitions. And, I, my, and, and at that point, my parents actually were, you know, sober for a minute to say, you know, we're grateful for what they're doing. However, I was already starting to deal with injuries. Little did I know I would only play two more games in two years after that. And so the video path was definitely the door that the Lord was opening, as you see today. (laughs) But but being there with with at Northeast, I met uh, my JV defensive coordinator coordinator was Danny Iosia. And he was I believe he's getting ready to retire soon. He's someone I'm trying to reconnect with. But like I said, bro, to just pull me, I, I constantly, this was, this was a God thing. I would always have people, although my family life was a train wreck at home, I would keep having people he would place in my life if it was, you know, now again, my parents more so used church as daycare, you know, for them to get rest on Sunday because they only would go like on Easter. And then my dad would come home and say, the pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> 
from the guy that goes to church once a year, half sober, right? So this this is this is your church experience. Uh, so we more so went with our grandparents, and um, you know there were all these people that looked like the you know the the United Nations that looked like the Rainbow Tribe of all every tongue and nation that he was placing in my life mm-hmm. to battle and to balance out all of the bad influences that you were literally seeing at home. So like you said, 2020 hit us both because I was like, how dare I? And at that point, it was a moment of conviction for me. We we can go into that. I I was like, at this point, you know, I've built this business from the ground up and and, and it's, it's more successful than it's been. And I'm not, I'm falling into this category of some of the people who I would criticize that don't want to speak up because they're afraid that speaking up is going to cost them business. And, 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 you know, we like to point that out in the civil rights movement and we blame, you know, predominantly white people, you know, they could have said something, those who didn't say it. And I'm like, well, this is the same thing. I know that this is a lie. My life is a testimony of it. I can no longer continue to sit quiet and let this narrative spread. And then I was seeing it in the churches. That was the last straw, bro. I'm seeing it there and I'm like, this is an absolute lie. And I don't know if you are under some (laughs) web of deception, but I'm I'm around men who I thought very well knew that, but Mm -hmm. were going along with the narrative in order to keep, you know, but butts and seats, as they say. Yeah. Butts and pews. So, so would you say then, like 2020 um, was kind of your watershed moment when yes. you started these uh, branching out from from doing your regular, you know, work yes. and 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 doing these other side projects with, uh, yes. you know, support our shields and the and the podcast and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, 2020 was a water. I mean, it was a watershed moment for me. I mean, I, I was in my 20th year. I didn't think I was going to uh, retire from the agency that I was working at, but I saw things happening, um, you know, in the urban environment and in the, the agency I worked, which I, I just never thought I'd, I'd see. And it was a complete stepping back from enforcing the law out yep. of fear of what other, uh, uh, of what other people would would think or or say or out of Absolutely. fear of what may happen and and you saw that happen across the across the entire country and that that's why yes. it's so encouraging for me to talk to um people such as yourself there was you know um cuz i was pretty pretty low like i i'd done my whole when i when i got into law enforcement i i my whole mission was see bad guy get bad guy Yes, there was no, there, there was no, like I didn't. And, and I've had people say that this is kind of a negative thing, but I did not go in really having any concept of the fact that, Hey, I may be working in a primarily, uh, black, uh, neighborhood. And how is that going to, you know, work with me being a white guy? Like I, I, it didn't, I I was not even thinking about that when I got in law enforcement. So maybe, maybe that, you know, so I get, you know, 20 years down the road. And of course the, the race issue would come up on some of my arrests, you know, guys would say, Oh, you arrest me because I'm black. You arrest me because I'm right. Latino, whatever. And, right. and we'd have those conversations. I'd be like, 
you know, listen, I didn't come into work today to, uh, to arrest you. You're not that important. You made a decision, <laughs> you know, you made a, a decision to sling dope over here or have a gun over here. Exactly. Like I, I, you know, I didn't make that decision, but, but I, I, it was still never like in 2020, all of a sudden I was asking myself, wait a second, because I'm a white police officer and I work in a primarily black community, Latino community, am I a racist? Yeah, because the 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 narrative had been so distorted. The narrative was so powerful that I was literally questioning it myself. And and until you know you know God bless my wife, she started introducing me to other people that had um, different perspectives, but were saying this is this is an absolutely evil ideology. The stuff that BLM is preaching, the social justice movement. Um, and in my heart, I knew it was wrong, but I was also, I'll, I'll admit as a white police officer, I was a little paralyzed to, to say anything about it at first, Yes. but I was extremely, like you said, discouraged and hurt by some of the stuff I started seeing coming out of, of some of the church leaders, you know, prominent or, you know, even, even locally, um, correct. Um, not my own church, but just some stuff, some people I knew some believers I knew and some of the stuff they were saying, I was like, what is going on here? Um, so it was right. a watershed moment for me. And it sounds like it was a real watershed moment for you to kind of start working on some of these projects that you were started working on. Oh, it, it was because, and, and this is why, let, let me give you fill in uh, some space between that. Because when, when I started, you know, when I was able to actually leave, I, I believe I left FedEx in 2005 and I went into my company, you know, just doing the, the multimedia production, you know, full time. And I was literally actually the, the, the title with the support I shields. Actually, I didn't come up with that until 2021, because in 2020, what I did, you know, my company for production has just been Ace Production. And and just, I, and just to clarify yeah, that that was yeah. you were mainly doing production work for churches, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, and that, and and actually, and before that, before it, I, you know, I started focusing in on churches. I've also done over twenty different campaign okay. websites and media projects. I mean, we're talking about everything from state senate to you know a local school board or count city commission. And so that was a part of the conviction that really even increased even more last year that where the critical perspective and and the conversations and the mic drops come in because, and I've been behind the scene. Mm. I was the guy who created when Chris Smith, state senator of Florida, after Trayvon Martin started to push about reforming Stand Your Ground, I was the creator of the website. Okay. So I'm behind the scenes with all this. I'm on the state capitol in Florida. I know, you know, you're just the IT guy. Nobody's really paying attention to you over in the corner fixing a computer or, or whatever, or, you know, whatever they want this vote scorecard thing to look like. So the conversations that are being had behind closed doors, then they walk out and get in front of a camera and totally go straight actor. Hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. What, what is this? You know, and then you you kind of you were you like, well, this is politicians politicking, you know, politicians being politicians. But when it got in, and so what I did was I just removed myself from doing political projects, you know, basically all to on a whole. 
And literally, like I said, the Lord would just keep opening doors. Um, I did, you know, if you went through um, and saw like basically how the National Baptist USA worked, like when this campaign season broke for the president of the convention, this this looks like, you know, akin to a, a DNC or GOP convention with right. the signs. And uh, it was so eye opening to see this uh, for the first time in 2014. And I had done some projects for uh, a candidate that was running and literally so many people were impressed with it. That's how I uh, got the account with the Ohio Baptist Convention. So that's why in 2020, I was doing all of this traveling because, of course, the church is shut down and versus, you know, again, you can't have every church or 90% of the churches try to all <laughs> go Facebook live right. and YouTube stream on Sunday. And we want, you know, of course it collapsed everything, the whole network. And I was actually being flown out all over the country to pre-record the service and the sermons and whatever things. So it took, uh, when I started the first 10 years, it was more web and graphics. Video really became the forefront, even though that's where my heart was, you know, doing it on your own and, and, and without any, you know, small business loans, you take the accounts you, you get, you know, and you work with that. So the video part came in later. And when this all hit, you know, I, I told one of the pastors in Fort Lauderdale, I was like, I really feel that this, you know, everyone is, is afraid or, and some of them are actually scaring the, the, the people worse. And I'm there. Like, You're not afraid to travel. I'm like, no, if, if the Lord intends to bring me home now because of COVID, then he's going to do it. Right. Regardless if I leave the house, you know, or not, we can't shudder it to me. I saw like we can't stop having church and worship and Bible study. This this is to me seemed like a, a really good plan for for the enemy. Yeah. But it was seen. So that's what I thought 2020 was going to be about. And then, of course, the summer of, of Floyd happens. And I'm like, wait a minute. Since 2014, Anthony, I'm like, I've been able to travel the, the country. You're talking about a kid who at that point, uh, by 2011, I had only been um, up north once okay. uh, to Pennsylvania. And even that opened my eyes. And then living five years in Tallahassee from, uh, 20, from, from 2011 to, all, to the end of 2016, you meet different people. You live in Cause, cause North Florida and South Florida, bro, are two completely different realities. <laughs> so you learn, you know, you you go to worship with with people from different backgrounds. And and I had always, uh, I started uh, in two thousand one. I was the first time I attended Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale. And then when I relocated to Tallahassee, it was Calvary Chapel Tallahassee. Whole different makeup. So it was it was normal for me to go to church, you know, with People from every background, white, Asian, Latino, I uh, could even be a majority of white people and we don't care. You know, right. we, we, the, you know, the, the men's group, uh, most times I was the only black guy, another black guy. No one said, well, Holly was the black guy. <laughs> you know? It was like being on the team again. Can you do your assignment? Right. You know, are you the defensive end that blows this up? Then that's what we care about. You know, like you said, so it wasn't uncommon, you know, for me to pray for someone and pray with someone who you don't look like. That's how it's supposed to be. So from that time, bro, the Lord opened these doors where I was in Minnesota in 2017. I saw a problem coming in Minneapolis before that ever happened. Yeah. I had never been in a place, Anthony, I'm literally downtown. 
because when the National Baptists show up, bro, they're going to take the biggest convention center, right. whether it's Cincinnati, St. Louis, Dallas, Atlanta, it's going to be there. You're talking about thousands of delegates. I, and so every place I would go, you know, I want to I want to know what is local in that place, you know. And so I don't want to go. Longhorns, is, you know, Olive Gardens are everywhere. I'm sitting there, bro. And literally, I had never seen anything like this in my life. It was like organized panhandling. Every five minutes, another homeless or drug addict comes to your table. Sitting outside, and I was like, now again, 6'3", 250 pounds, after about the third time you look at somebody, they kind of pass the message on. Right. And <laughs> it was so funny. The last lady that came, you know, she was like, I just, I don't even want any money. I want you to smile because you look like you're ready to choke somebody. <laughs> so so they, were, they were getting the message. But I told my wife, I was like, this situation is unsustainable. You get off of the interstate to pull into the downtown corridor, bro, and it's lined with tents. Mm-hmm. All side of the highway, they have this whole tent, like what we're seeing in LA and San Francisco right. now. That was there in 2017. Wow. So it, it had already taken hold, and you know the poor leadership there and their ideology. Right. So to go to these different places and hear them saying one thing at the church, but then I go around in the actual community and I'm witnessing something else. And, and then to add fuel to that, like we said, 2020 hits. And all, of course, all of the protests that we were claimed to be mostly peaceful, yet we see billions of dollars of damage that's done right. to mostly minority businesses and communities. Which is terrible. And like, Do you understand what you're doing? Right. That, that. That was one of the most sickening things to me. You know, yes. you, you saw these pundits on the news talking about these mostly peaceful protests Protest, and, right. and, and, and being okay with it happening. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching this and I'm, it's and just I'm also property. Seeing, Anthony. It's just property. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm saying to myself, you're okay with the, the 1% of this community burning down the, to the ground, the, the businesses of people who have worked years to build it. Correct. Like, correct. I don't understand it. It made zero sense to me. None of it made any sense to me. And the, the, the general consensus across the U S of these departments, these, these city departments, these urban departments to take a step back and do nothing was yes. disgusting to me. It like yes. so disgusted me. And I literally, I, there was one point where we were dealing what we were dealing with in Lancaster City here in Pennsylvania, where I yes. called a friend of mine and, and I, I was emotional. And I told my friend yes. for the first time in my life, I am embarrassed to be a police officer. And it's not because of anything yes. we've done. It's because of what we're not doing. We're literally yes, choosing not to enforce the law. And it's affecting the people in the community. And we're yes. doing it because we're afraid of what BLM's going to say. And BLM, yes. hate group, I I could care less about them. Yes. But but you know, it 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 was just so disheartening to me to see these businesses burn the people in it was their community. It was their Correct. businesses. And and this is the thing about it Anthony. We 
you know, for me, like you said, they this is where they, you know, then they try to go in and with, like you said, they say, well, he hasn't had the experience. And then you pull out the receipts and then it's like, oh, well, he's a sellout because, well, now, you know, will, will you live on a five acre, you know, um, ranch and you have. Yeah, but we've earned that. Right. You know, that that wasn't given. But I come from so literally uh, when we're talking about Fort Lauderdale and remember, is, there's a documentary that I'm obsessed with. My wife can't take it. Cocaine Cowboys, <laughs> because this was what I saw so much growing up. Like Miami was so bad, brother. My parent, again, my dad, who I've shared with you, the type of dude this was, we only visited that aunt that lived in Miami, I think three times. He did not do Day County. And if you remember the Overtown riots in Liberty City in the late 80s, if I take you there now, there are still areas that didn't recover. Right. It still looks like a war zone. And so that's the part like and that's that's what hit me. Like I've seen that. I've seen the Cistrunk Corridor, which is that version in Fort Lauderdale. That's where a lot of my clients with these churches were. And it's like, you've been there a hundred years and yet the community looks like this. Where is the salt and light? Because you're too busy being woke. So that was the moment for me with the righteous indignation. Uh, my wife and I were actually, we, we do these weekend trips, you know, to these little towns in, in Florida. And we were going to a place called San Antonio, Florida. And I was telling her about what I've shared with you, these stories of my interaction with law enforcement. And, and these so-called, because this, I had never seen any time, again, Watts, uh, whether we have the Rodney King riots, um, um, Ferguson, mm-hmm. uh, Overtown, I had never seen this intentional mass produced lie that is white supremacy. That was the part where I'm like, it's what? <laughs> and like you said, we can't respond. We can't come in with force and shut this down. And I'm watching the stories that are only being shown on conservative media of you're seeing black business owners crying because their stores are being destroyed and their communities are being burned down. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is where I come from, bro. And that's your whole dream is to work your butt off and to stay out of trouble so that you, yeah, bro, at 23, I was out in Coral Springs and I didn't want to look back. No, I didn't forget where I came from. I never wanted to go back. That was a part of that whole compulsive, you have to have another account, you know, that I was able to work out with, you know, in Christian counseling. It's like, yeah, I don't want to ever go back there. And so, you know, you kind of start to become, that becomes like almost an idol that if you keep enough money and you lose sight of what our true source is, you know, it was that whole thing of I never want to be back there. I never want to be back, you know, in that situation again. And I'm like, you know, for what uh, that, that was actually an eye opening for my wife before this happened. I'll back up and bring you uh, forward again, because when we reconnected, she was back in South Florida. And uh, as we were dating, you know, she was like uh, she was recently divorced and she's Paying alimony, I, I won't even go down that path. But I was like, that's insane. But she's like, you know, you can't. Everything is so expensive in South Florida, largely because of failed policies mm-hmm. and handouts. Yeah. And so when it's subsidized, bro, everyone has to pay for that. 
And then the issues never get addressed. Now, mind you, she's telling me what she's dealing with. I'm living in Tallahassee, but I know that I've worked for a lot of, I mean, three cent, three senators in a particular Senate seat in Florida. I've worked for all of them. They all will jump up. It was funny. They hold these town hall meetings after Trayvon or after Mike Brown, and they think that diversity was because they had different ethnic groups represented. I'm like, you're all liberals. You, Of course we knew what direction you were going. You never want to attack the problem of the broken family and fatherlessness. Right. You blame the police and guns. I've seen this movie before, but they're just an echo chamber. And so when when she's explaining me, she's like, you know, this, you know, she had relocated from South Carolina back to South Florida. And she's like, for work. And she was like, this is just unsustainable. And I was like, are you married to South Florida? And she said, no. I was like, because if you leave <laughs> South Florida you're in, and come to Central and North Florida, you're going to see a completely different life. You're going to see a um, far more manageable uh, life as far as income. And, and you can relate to that yeah. life outside of when you compare. Um, I'll give you a place I've been, Bel- Belfont. Mm-hmm. outside of state college compared to Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, yeah, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Or Hershey. We, yeah. We've recently been there. And so that's what I was explaining to her. But again, why the summer of Floyd hurt me is because so we were in a situation that we have mobility financially to be able to move. Not everyone can. And that's why the role of law enforcement, one of the roles is so important. But I was that kid that was in that. That never left me. And I was like, how dare you? And like I said, the slap in the face. So when we're driving that day and I'm telling her, I probably scared her to death because like you, I, I got emotional and broke down crying. And she was like, are we going to have to pull over? So I was like, do you understand how many people have poured in my life that didn't look like me, that I understand is what led me to where I am today? And now you're telling me that I people that I know, bro, are fake who are the real sellouts, are making money, demonizing a whole mm. group of people they never met because something of something that their ancestors may or may not have in most cases in the United States had nothing to do with and it didn't affect the people who are claiming to be the victims. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't. T- yeah, that was that was it for me. I, said, I, I can't. If it cost me every account, like I'm literally editing a video and I'm watching a pastor, two pastors, and they're playing, you know, so, you know, every, so we had all these fake harmony moments, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to (laughs) come together to have this difficult discussion about race. I was like, well, it's not a difficult discussion because you only want to have a one side discussion. And that is what we're being taught with critical race theory is that white people are naturally bad and the oppressors. I reject that totally, but that, so that's how they wanted to frame it. So literally, this is probably two weeks after. Mind you, you only got the last nine minutes or whatever of this arrest video. Why don't you see the entire arrest in its entirety for months? Because they needed time to paint a certain narrative. And it was going to be that the police are the problem. So I'm sitting here, brother, watching a man who makes over $300,000 a year at a church, live in a gated community sit with a straight face and be asked by a white pastor, how do you feel? And he says, I'm afraid. Of who? 
You have personal security in and at that church. You live in a gated community upscale. You don't live anywhere near the members of that church in that hood. Now, that right. literally is the hood. But you're afraid. Right. You drive what? Because you drive a BMW. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't take it. I was like, wait a minute. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not hating on the BMW. Anthony. I have one in the outside in the garage <laughs> as well. But I'm like, we understood the hard work that it took to get it. How are we going to turn around and play victim when I'm with you when you do street ministry? You strap, I'm strapped, and we got personal security with us in that same historical neighborhood that millions have been pumped into. Basically, to me, it looks like a money laundering scheme because you've never dealt with the broken spirit of the people. Yeah. And yet we're I'm recording you do street ministry. You got security, all of us strapped up. And we're saying white supremacy. There isn't a white person within 10 miles. <laughs> yeah. We know the fellows will roll up and, and shoot a pastor if they feel that we're stepping on their turf where they're selling the dope at. Right. I couldn't take it, bro. I was like, this, this is insane. And then I got another one who is the competing church, which is, you know, now mind you, I'm the guy, you know, doing both accounts. So from a financial standpoint, I'm going to just keep it real with you. It benefited me because instead of them, Honestly, being focused on ministry, they were one church 110 years ago. So it's always the one trying to compete with the other. Mm. So literally, I do something for the other. I know in a couple of days I'm going to get called by the other one. Now they want it. <laughs> so you, you, you literally, you, you, you're paying for the BMW. God bless you. Right. But they, he's doing a podcast. Anthony, he literally goes down off script. So he, this, I'm, I'm the one that's editing this. And he... Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, mm. um, um, uh, what's the uh, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. He calls off these names, and and this is systemic racism, and this is police brutality and white supremacy. He can't name the kid who was shot that went to his church in that community the week before. He never said his name, right? Because yep. he was shot in a drug deal that everyone knew what he was doing and no one wanted to intervene and actually help the cops who were trying to investigate to catch it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't take it, bro. I was like, so, but they were the first ones to run. So, of course, they had all the media attention. Brother, you couldn't beat them getting out in front of the, the podium to do a news conference after any incident. Like you said, you were seeing you were seeing the flip side of law enforcement backing up. You have these so-called pastors and political leaders. They can't wait to hold a press conference to throw the cops under the bus before they ever had the facts. Then when things start burning now, well, we got to do it. We got to find another way. We want peace. But you stoked the whole situation. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, you're, you're also like listing down all those, all those names. I saw pastors yes. do that. I saw pundits do yes. it. I saw all kind people listing down all these names and every single one of those situations is different. There's different Absolutely. context. There's different facts there. There's, Absolutely. Some of them police weren't even involved. Um, Absolutely. And, 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 and you're like lumping them all together to create this narrative of systemic racism, um, which, you know, and, and one of the other things I saw that was like so disturbing to me, I saw a very, um, uh, 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 I don't even want to say very famous pastor, but a, 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 a pastor who has a name 
he has a yes. following and, yes. and he he did a thing uh you know this like you know this round table you know the, the the thing that they would have these tables and they would sit around a table and everyone would have these conversations and, and right. talk about how terrible the police are in this problem that we have yes. in the country and, and yes. inviting these having these hard conversations at these tables and i'm like where is the police officer in the conversation I'm Correct. sure if you look out over your congregation, you have a police officer in your congregation. Why Correct. don't you invite them to the table? You want to invite all these people to the table to have a conversation, except one person. You don't want to invite one person to that table. And that was super telling to me. And that's honestly one of the reasons why I, I started the podcast, because I'm like, I want to have cops to the table to, to tell their stories, to, to, to have their perspective. Not that it's the end-all, be-all perspective, but we want to have these conversations, but we only want to have them with certain people. Right. And we want because we already know what we want the the um, the talking point and the script to be. And so and, and I know that you're correct and what you experienced, because, again, I was the guy on the other side of the production for these type of roundtables that you're talking about. Right. Also, I'm the guy who and let's go back to Fort Lauderdale. So you literally have the sheriff who is black, who this same pastor that rolled off the names, they, this is before that happened. He did not want to meet with him because he happened to be a Republican. See, this the get, and so that was the hypocrisy right. that I can't take anymore. Right. And I was like, this is the game. So really, it, it became very clear, bro, that this was more political. And then you go back through the history. And like I said, that's why documentaries like Uncle Tom are so important, because it, it shows us that this, this did not just start. We're almost 100 years in on this, bro. And it's been the same script played on particularly black people because we, we're the guinea pigs for this. Like when you look at things like Planned Parenthood mm. and it's like. If you continue to take this poison, you're always going to be in this position. Yeah. And it's so interesting. You were talking earlier about handouts and everything and how, you know, comparing that to working hard. And it, it, it's so interesting to me that my view of government is that the main, the main job of the government is to keep its people safe. That, that Correct. you know, it's, it's there to serve its people. But, Correct. you know, we, we've we've arrived at this this uh, idea that if, if we can get to higher levels of victimhood and get yep. more handouts from the government, that will help us. Handouts will always make you more poor, in my opinion, Correct. because there's no Correct. there's no work behind it. it, it it's it's, Correct. it's laziness um, and, and hard work will always will always get you to where you need to be. And, and again, yes. I saw that day in and day out in the community I worked where, you know, people would, would spend more time. You know, I, I remember talking to young, uh, black men, like in their twenties and asking them, you know, where do you work? Oh, I don't work. Well, how do you make right. money? Oh, I get SSI. Well, what do you get SSI yep. for? Oh, I have a, uh, you know, I have, uh, you know, anxiety. And I'm like, Bro, I, I'm like, bro, I, I, have, have, anxi one of those I have anxiety every single day I get on the street. Like I'm not getting SSI, you know, um, you know, or, or I had one guy one time, he told me he had a stuttering problem. I'm like, dude, and you, you, guess, you, you and just you get money, right? You had a conversation yep. with me for the last 20 minutes. You haven't stuttered once, <laughs> um, you know, but, but that's the, that's, you know, 
getting handouts from the government, making the government your your daddy and your mommy. Yes. Breeds laziness. It it, it exactly. It, it you know and 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 there's also no no hope in it because no there you know there's no personal responsibility. There's no um, call to dealing with those heart issues, dealing with your trauma because you can use that to get free money that isn't going to get you anywhere in life anyways. Instead of Correct. saying, "Hey, I need I need to deal with with my stuff. I need to confront." my demons. I need to yes. take steps to better myself. And ultimately, again, you know, God's grace uh, covers all these things. And you see people yes. in terrible situations that, you know, can't get out of those situations. And you see people in terrible situations where, where by God's grace, they have gotten out. Um, and, but, and that, well, let's take that a step further, bro. This is this is the divide again when these these so-called difficult conversations that we see that are that are being uh, conveniently produced, they are one-sided for a reason. They literally never want to talk, and so I'm one of these people that have a prop, you know, that I, I I constantly point out the difference between the difference between African American. And a black person. <laughs> my dad, I got it from my dad. I was like, Elon Musk is an African American. <laughs> I am not, I've never been to Africa. I was like, you know, this started with, you know, Jesse Jackson in, in the late 80s, right. but they never, there is a divide. I have an uncle through marriage who is from Nigeria who I don't have a, you know, a very, I, we have a good relationship as far as um, respect, but I didn't grow up around him because my dad thought he was a nerd. Because he was, and my dad had no time for someone who wasn't a hellraiser, pretty much. Uh-huh. And and of course, my uncle didn't want to be around. But you have to understand what his culture was in Africa. Mm-hmm. It was completely different. He had no understanding. He immigrated here as an adult. He did not understand the complete dysfunction that he saw with. uh, uh, blacks in America. Hmm. He thought that was, he thought it was utterly ridiculous. He was painted as the bad guy in my family. You see, you see how that works? Yeah. The same thing with my uncles who were more successful, my mom's brother, they were painted. And this was, you know, by my parents where they think they're better than us was Hmm. what we were told. He has everything to lose to be here in this foolishness. But that one uncle, not the Nigerian one, but my mom's brother, my uncle Morris, just retired like five years ago from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. He worked okay. in forensic. Okay. He can't be around in this constant dis- dysfunction with your dad, who I don't know if any of those guns are ever legal. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, this is his career, more or less his life, possibly on the line, fooling around with my dad. It's it's not gonna work. And then they and that's the comp, that's a part of the so-called you know, these difficult conversations that they claim that they want to have. But again, they don't want them. They don't want to talk to the Haitian community. They don't want to talk to especially the um, the Hispanic community that has immigrated from Cuba and Venezuela because they are coming, escaping communism and socialism. And they have a completely different work ethic. And to tie it into our current political landscape, it's no surprise why they're switching parties. Mm. Yeah, but but I guess that's because they're white supremacists too. That's what the mainstream media right. would, would tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, for sure, it, it's 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 just a a really interesting conversation. Um, yes. Especially 
you know, talking to you, like where you've had a completely different experience than me uh, growing up, uh, a completely different atmosphere. But to see two people who have, you know, grown up so differently, have like a, a, uh, a, a join together view on just our country right now. Um, Correct. The, the social justice and, and woke stuff that is just really just destroying it from the inside out. Correct. And, and so, you know, kind of like just moving forward here, you, you create support our shields yes. um, and you create this critical conversation podcast. Can you just talk about the mission of both of those um, and, and, and what you hope to, uh, to accomplish through those projects? Absolutely. So like we like we were saying earlier, you know, support our shields was like this immediate reaction. You know, at first I didn't have a name for it. I just literally the first couple of police departments I went to were the ones we lived in a little city called Fruitland Park up until last year. And I just wanted to go in. I had the plaque created and tell them, you know, in the summer of 2020, thank you. And I I, I just went in and shared my testimony and the chief is completely blown away. But I'm like, I. You know, I share my testimony basically every time. And then I was like, it's because of men and women like yourselves that instilled in me what the American dream could be, you know, and and what you can do in a country with the opportunities that we're that we are afforded here. And so at that time, it it just had the name of my company on. And I'm like, I'm just a private citizen. After 2020, after the election. And, and, you know, I'll just be very honest with you. I, I was very, very upset, <laughs> <laughs> as you can understand, at what I saw happen. And, and, and I'll, I'll be more transparent. I, I even got to a point where I was upset with Lord Anthony because I said, Lord, when, when are you going to expose this that is happening? You know, people are dying because of this. They're being constantly lied to for evil to prevail. And your word says you're going to deal with it. And he turned it back on me. And that's where the conviction, like, what are you doing? Hmm. How many accounts do you have? And how many days have you said nothing? Now, a lot of some some of these pastors will have private conversations with, you know, but never spoke out publicly. Right. You know, well, you just you just separated yourself from these crooked campaigns, Mm -hmm. but you've never shared what you know behind the scenes because you know what? You're like a lot of the people who are saying nothing now. Nobody wants to be inconvenienced. We've gotten so comfortable in this country. We don't know how the rest of the world lives. And I, I just got courage from people who were speaking out and like, regardless of this was costing them contracts and endorsements. And it's like, this is what it's going to take. We're right. watching our country come apart because we don't want to get out of our comfort zone. Now, here where we are now, you know, in central Florida, you know, so we we go, we joined a Southern Baptist church. We wanted a church that was serious about Jesus and solid, you know, theological teaching. We didn't care yeah. what the racial makeup was, me nor my wife. It just so happens that predominantly the church is white. Okay. Mm-hmm. We don't care. Right. Uh, and this is just to show you how life will flip. You know, you go from a kid growing up, you know, of course, uh, uh, in poverty, you know, lower class. And now you go to a rural area in Florida and because your wife is a medical director and your business has been successful, 
now the shoe is on the other foot. You go to you go to church with a lot of people who still work rural jobs, but happen to be white. Mm. See, and so yeah. we've been blessed to be able to to donate and help others in our church. That again, now is you see what I'm saying? It's reciprocal because it was done, you know, for me. And so we we sponsored um, a, a kid from Haiti. And my wife was doing that before, you know, the, the promotion. She, it, the Lord just laid it on her heart. And so, yeah, he challenged me, bro. Like, what are you willing? Will you continue to just have these private conversations with people? Or will you actually say what you've seen and what you're continuing to see and everything that I brought you through? And that's literally the name support our shields was not something that saw somewhere. It was literally given to me. And I was like, this is what I you know, have to do. I didn't have any, again, now mind you, the, the amount of nonprofits I've worked for, you're talking about the Tuskegee Airmen of Miami, uh, the, uh, the Black United States Air Force Academy graduates. These are all former clients. None of them I could go to with this because politically they're not interested. Hmm. Yeah. So you're literally, so I knew I was going to have to go out on my own and you've worked for so many you know, senators and grant writers and, and, and reps, but no one is going to help you with this because, well, I take that back. They would. I know someone in particular who is currently a state senator, but that means you're going to have to get in bed, you know, figuratively with the same people who are screaming to fund the police. And I wouldn't do it. Yeah. So I literally said, well, I've got to do this grassroots, bro. When I was in the meeting with the presentation with the sheriff of uh, Ocean uh, City, New Jersey, and he was like, how are you funded? I said, out of my own pocket. Yeah. And he, he was just blown away. He was like, how are you going over the country? And I, and I said, I'm literally, like I explained to you before we got on, right. all of these accounts that I had with these conventions and churches, that's where I started, you know, was in these same, with those communities. And I would literally talk to people. Like I told you, um, outside of uh, Kent, Ohio, outside of Cleveland, I meet this restaurant owner, Zoo, another brother in the Lord who is an immigrant um, from, the, from actually Lebanon. This is someone, bro, who was fighting in their civil war. He's 14 years old with an M16. Wow. This was his life. Right. And so he's saying, you're going to tell me that this country is racist? Do you know what I came from? I can't go back. Me and my brother would be shot at the airport. Hmm. This, and he was like, we've made a, I, I had dinner with them, you know, their whole family. Right. And he was like, do you understand what this country means to you, us? I was like, oh, I absolutely do. And he was the one who connected me with the Portage County Sheriff's office there to present a plaque. And so it was literally to go for the, fir the first part, because what you said you were experiencing, I was seeing the demoralization in law enforcement. And I was actually seeing like this whole white guilt that I thought is unacceptable. I, I'm like, how are we falling for this? That again, you want people to take blame and apologize for something they didn't do. Yeah. Brother, to people who didn't experience it. <laughs> That's insanity on his head. Right. Yeah. So you again, like I said, we, my father-in-law born in the '30s, my father born in the '40s, grew up in the Jim Crow South. Neither supported affirmative action. They thought in the '70s this is a bad idea. We've seen where that has gotten us right. because 
you know, again, on different levels, like I said, my, my dad's issue, Anthony, he could have created his own business. He was that skilled of a repairman. It was the drinking. It came first. He had people who wanted to invest in this, this black man who had a ninth grade education because of how skilled he was. He couldn't be reliable because he may be arrested and in jail for three days when you need this job done, right. you know, to, to work for himself. And so um, that, yes, yeah, support our shields and knowing that my background in media and all of these campaigns I've done and all of these promotional videos, like I explained to people, I'm not, you know, if you think about your local church or, or maybe a larger church that you see on TV, I'm not the guy that is on one of the cameras or on the, uh, on the soundboard and, you know, in the pit or upstairs. What they would do for me is I'm the guy who produces those trailers and those cinematic short presentations to get excitement going about an upcoming conference or a youth retreat. Right. So literally, I may engage with a local church's media team, but really they bring me on. Again, the whole, that's where Hollywood, we want Hollywood. Right. Make this event exciting <laughs> and, and to get people who don't necessarily attend church regularly or attend our church to come out for this event. So make it look like a Hollywood release, make it look like the Avengers of sound, you know, something exciting like that. And, and that had been very, I'm just being honest, you know, profitable for me and, and also keeping it at a cost that, you know, a ministry could afford, you know, within their budget. So it was a re reciprocal thing. I wanted to do that with law enforcement because I understand my background being media how it is used as a tool of propaganda. Hmm. And it came to a head for us in 2020. And so the reason why the morale was so low in law enforcement, what you guys are dealing with, the lies that are being told about you. And it's also, you notice right away, one of the first things is we got to remove the, the show cops from TV. Yeah. Ridiculous. We don't want you to see what police officers actually go through on a day-to-day -day basis because that doesn't fit the narrative of them being uh, white supremacists that we want to now push. So that needs to be removed. And so you have, there's been multiple meetings in different states that I've had with sheriffs where they're saying we're 30 officers short. Right. They just told me that in New Jersey. It's the same thing here in Central Florida in the county we live in. And I was like, do you understand what that does to the officers like yourself that are still working? You're completely overworked. Right. You don't have enough people. It is going to have a domino effect. But who in their right mind would want to go into law enforcement when you're already held as the, 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 the problem? Right. And, and the perps are actually the heroes who wants to put themselves in that situation? There's no wonder why the numbers are low and yeah. the morale is low. Just, just real quick, too, something yeah. I was thinking about the other day, um, you know, the, the push that the law enforcement is systemically racist uh, completely kills the how, how do you get it makes no sense to me. You push that the police are systemically racist and then you scream about the fact that these cities can't hire more minority yes. <laughs> police officers. I'm like, well, how, why would a, why would a black guy want to be a police officer exactly. in a system that's racist? It makes zero sense to me. But anyways, oh, also, continue. let's take it another step, brother. Also, they're looking at it. And these are conversations because I, I had a nephew, you know, two actually 
uh, retired Marines. And actually, at one point, the thought was law enforcement. Right. He's like, wait a minute. Well, now I could be sued, possibly jailed for something I didn't do. And my life can be basically ruined. And I'm putting my life on the line every day already. Right. There's no upside to this for him at 28 years old coming out of the Marine. Right. And these are the type of men and women you want. Especially since he's been working for an agency that's systemically racist. Correct. It makes no sense. And he's like, well, I can get thrown under the bus. Right. You don't. So I'm like, this gives us. and, And to me, when you break down cultural Marxism, then you understand that these things are not just happening in isolated bubbles, brother. This was a plan. And so that was what led me to go further then. So, you know, I'm doing Support Our Shields 2021. I'm going through. And so it would be two things. I would look for, like I told you, I started locally uh, in my county and then branched out at the neighboring county. And again, you're, you're talking to a man who has no law enforcement background, you know, just the admiration for the calling. So I, I had, again, I had a uh, uncle who you know, retire. And I have a first cousin who was actually, you saw one of the videos I think that I did on him, yeah. mm-hmm. who's retired law enforcement um, in, in uh, Loxley, Alabama. But, you know, I, I wasn't in any organizations or fraternal order of police. So I'm literally coming from a private citizen's perspective. And what, what happened is when I started going on the websites like Officer Down and the National Police Memorial, I'm looking at the numbers. You know, these things get thrown out, you know, on TV. And when the rise in officers killings went, but until you see the number and you read that officer's bio, that was the next part for me. I was like, this, this, this 28-year-old guy had three children, right. you know, and a wife, and he dies drowning trying to save two teenage boys. He didn't wake up that morning, like you said. Did you? Do you think I woke up this morning, you know, to harass you right. and, and the laws that you were breaking? Well, he didn't wake up that morning thinking he's jumping into a lake and he's not coming out. You know, those yeah. were the stories. When you read all of those stories, and then I couldn't just let that, you know, go. And so that making that page on my site with those memorials, and then I'm um, reaching out. In that case, you know, in most cases, if it was a department where I had some type of uh, connection, then I started doing plaques, you know, for a particular officer who had uh, been killed in the line of duty, you know, just coming from some, again, there's a guy in Florida they've never met and in most cases never heard of. But, you know, I'm like, I think that it's our responsibility as private citizens, like, like I said, someone who has been afforded and and lived an amazing life because of people like yourself and your calling in this country to do that. And so every, of course, the, the uh, response that you get from uh, these officers and their families, you know, they're so grateful, even some of them, you know, you don't get a chance. I don't get a chance to meet them in person, but they respond, they reach out and message on YouTube or Facebook. And they're so grateful. They're dealing with a, a loss that a lot of people cannot, you know, imagine. Right. That your life could be cut short, you know, at such an early age, trying to save someone else and keep the community safe. 
But it was in doing that, again, you were never hearing about that. None of them, David Dorn wasn't given a gold casket in a state funeral like he was a, a, a dignitary, you know, or a former president. You see what I'm saying? Yep. And to look at that, you know, in my perspective, and then start to break down where this rhetoric is coming from. Like I said, we had seen all the riots before, but the whole white supremacy and white privilege part was what was throwing me where this is coming from when the data they claimed all, remember, we got to follow the data and follow the science, says the total opposite. Then that is where the critical communications came in at is because the the uh, to me law enforcement is the target because if you take down law enforcement remember they keep saying dismantle racism dismantle white supremacy the dismantle part is what we can't lose sight of because that marxist ideology they can't get their utopia unless they first demand dismantle what we already have that's why that is baked into it it's amazing that none of these what they call serious journalists ever question these three women who admitted they were trained Marxists while they were giving them millions of dollars and heralding them, you know, as the, right. the future of, of racial reconciliation in the United States. Right. So it became clear to me that is why law enforcement is the target. It's a bonus. If they're white or this whole new term we've used, not a person of color, but really you want to, they, some of them are honest enough to say it. They want to abolish prisons and abolish the police. Mm -hmm. Remember, Corey Bush, not just the fund, abolish it because you will have chaos and they don't think that they can get their new utopia unless this capitalist system that they all, by the way, benefit from. Right. And, and it's amazing. You're so afraid of white people, but you can get in mansions in predominantly white areas mm -hmm. that you move to. Yep. You know, you have no problem with those white supremacists that you claim that you want to live, yep. that you want to live next to. Literally. But they're the problem. Yeah. And, and so none of that money yeah, going into the none of it goes none right. Of and money. this is nothing new. This right. is again, they just took it on a different level. You know, it's, it's I, I explain it to people, brother. It's, it's just, you know. It wasn't that what Michael Jackson did, you know, again, I'm dating myself, that was 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 so original. He was just, remember, he will tell you, he learned from James Brown. He took it to the next level. Or Jackie Wilson, they took it from Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Do the racial grip. They just, they social media with it, and it exploded on a global level that would make Sharpton blush. And of course, he's still getting in on it. Right. But yeah, they they just took it. And of course, they had a more sinister where I never thought his base was communist. Theirs were, and they never hid that. You know, they, of course, scrubbed it from the website when that became right. public knowledge. Yeah. So that's when I said, OK, police are the target because you can't bring down the greatest country in the world unless you first remove law and order. So that is why that the target is. And you notice, like I said, it's a bonus if they can play the racial dynamic to it because they want to keep uh, the majority, which in this country happens to be whites. But remember, this whole Marxist movement, this is South America, 
We've seen this in Russia. We've yep. seen this over the world. They, uh, we've seen it in China, Vietnam. They always play to turn whatever group they can against each other because the point is always to divide, then conquer. Right. So that's why I wanted to have a separate production that was not focused on law enforcement, but getting to the root of the political and culture movement that is being basically ran under our noses in real time. And they literally want to play white boogeyman in order for us not to get to the real heart of what they're actually doing. And like I said, when you go back in Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass, and, uh, and even in our, in our current time, people like Thomas Sowell, mm-hmm. Larry Elder, these are black men who have warned they have come out. Manning Johnson is a name that I don't think most people had ever heard of until Uncle, Uncle Tom, too. I heard of him because he was a former communist. He comes out and says, this is the plan. He's warning of this in the 50s, bro, that this is the plan. It's to take the black community, take advantage of them, radicalize them in order to use the whole white guilt dynamic to install this whole cultural Marxist movement. Right. Yeah. And I think what you said is so, so true. Like, you know, if you can, if you can abolish law and order and while lifting up victim mentality in, in all people, not just the black community, look at the trans stuff, look at whatever it may be. If you can lift up victim mentality and, and abolish law and order, you create people who in their victim mentality look for the government to solve their problems. And as soon as you do that, and as soon as you strip away personal responsibility and this idea that sin rests in the heart of men and it's not systemic, or well, it is systemic. Sin is systemic. That is right. But it's like, you know, it's, it's not this, the system, you know, is, is the man, (laughs) the man is the center, um, you know, and you don't make everything permissible. Um, and what you do make permissible promotes victim mentality. I mean, it's all, Correct. it's all wrapped together. Um, yes. and once you do that, and once you create a people that are looking for government, mommy and daddy to take care of them, man, you, you do, you can start to create that socialist, uh, you know, communist utopia, which we know is not utopia. Um, right. And but, well, it is for one group. Yeah. The the yeah. elites. <laughs> the elites and you know, the, the aristocracy and the wokeites, what I call them, you know, remember Marx he referred to the actual rioters, the the BLM Antifa, the, the fools on the street as useful idiots mm-hmm. because he needed them to do the dirty work to actual that you know, then they you know, they're great for creating the problem that they supposedly have the solution to. That's only going to lead from, to more problems. But until the people, they never realize it. Yeah. Red, you know, uh, the, the Red Scourge, Russia, you know, China, Mao, um, Pol Pot, Cambodia, you know, Vietnam. They don't know it until it's too late. And I don't want to see that happen to the greatest country, you know, that I think in, in history. And, and, it's, and it's not because of ourselves. When we go back and understand that's again, think about this. You said two things. You said about now, remember the whole explosion of the trans movement. Where did this come from? Mm. We're around the same age. We're like, what, what is this? But you need another class of victims because the more people you have, like a, brand, a Brandon Tatum, a Candace Owens, a Brandon Strocker, who are all younger than us, 
who were a part of that whole Democrat brainwashing now speaking out against it. They need another group. You have way too many black people waking up to the scheme. And they, so, so what a perfect group, someone who's mentally ill and doesn't know who they are, then we'll always have a victim. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Cause even, even in this case, think about the dynamic you're seeing. And when did, when did you have openly gay men and women advocating for conservative principles? When did we see this in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s? Right. Yeah. Right. So they 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 are they're crafty. They know that they need that other class. So we'll have one. You, we, we literally broke with it. What was this? In the last two weeks, we had a man who claims to be a woman interview the president of the United States. He just claimed that he was a woman. What? The beginning of this year. Yeah. Yeah. What what clown world are we living in? (laughs) And they talked about literally the conversation centered around the fact that you can mutilate a child Hmm. and call that care. Yeah. So it takes us back, brother, that, that we we have been blessed as a nation, not because we're so great and we're better than any other people on the world. The, oh, the, the second part of that was that's why the New York Times and the Wokeites push the 1619. That's how Marxists always work. If you go back to even the revolution in France, they wanted to do away with the calendar because they don't want you to know your real history. And again, Blacks have been the guinea pigs of this for centuries. And so that's what, again, you know, you, you, we play this game where we literally take our journey in America based off roots when Alex Haley, when confronted about it, says, well, I just wanted a story to inspire my people. I never said it was fact because until recently, this has been a conversation that a lot of people are afraid to have. How did we get here? You were sold in Africa. It was a transaction. Stop blaming the person. You see what I'm saying? We yeah. don't want to have that real conversation. If you ask people who Anthony Johnson is, they can't tell you. Anthony Johnson was a black man who owned slaves that had his case go all the way to the Supreme Court in America. But why isn't that being taught in school? Hmm. Because we want a narrative that we can only blame white people. Yeah. You see? And so the 1619 Project, we don't want 1776 because we don't want to talk about the God-centered Judeo-Christian values that made us different, and we were blessed because of it. And I think when we look where we are today, as we're having this discussion in 2022, and all of the problems we're seeing rear their ugly head, we have to look in the mirror as a nation, as a people, and say, but what have we done with the Lord? Because we, we see in Scripture clearly, and this is on the believers. We see the children of Israel constantly turn their back and then the destruction that comes from that. Yeah. So we have the warning. What are we doing with it? Yeah. Well, from my experience behind the scenes, you know, too many people are buying luxury cars and they've gotten they've gotten rich off of the gospel and they don't want. I, I had a conversation with, with one pastor, bro, and, and this was 2020, right before the election. When I got there to to do his recording, he's on the phone with another pastor and he's coaching him on what to say. 
So basically, it's election and we're black. So we got to scare black people into voting Democrats, because if not, we're going to put y'all back in chains. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so he's on the phone. And he's telling, well, tell them your children's lives depend on it and your grandchildren's lives depend on it. And I'm, I'm, I can hear it. And I'm setting up my camera in the light. And then we go. And he doesn't go that way. And so afterwards, we're talking and he's like, yeah, I heard what he was saying, but he was like, you know, the Democrats are for so many things that are totally opposed to scripture. Right. And I said, so why didn't you say that? Because he knew the congregation would turn on. Think about what I'm saying. to you. Yeah. This is his this is his source of income. And he doesn't want to lose again. We're, we're talking about a different day, my brother. I, this is not the pastor and you're bringing him, you know, food from the storehouse because this is what he does. We're talking about some guys making seven figures. It's been compromised. Yeah. And you can either. And that's why I told you the my own conflicting, you know, being confronted about it was. You can go along and continue to wait for someone else, or you're going to be obedient and speak out about all of it, and you'll let the chips fall where they may, and you'll actually trust the Lord to do, you know, to to provide and doors that He'll open. and And I'll be honest, it's it's been a you know it's been a test of faith because. This year alone, I'm down several thousand from, you know, accounts, accounts that I did cancel, you know, right. starting off the, the biggest uh, offenders. I'm like, I can't do this. Right. And yeah, it's that trust. And, and at the same time, you know, not having again, I mean, all of it takes, you know, it, it all takes money to do what, you know, to do what we're doing. And, you know, saying again, in my case, I, I am able to produce my own stuff. But to actually, you know, get the funding for it. And so that was the 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 latest step has been to reach out uh, to brothers like you because, you know, because of the lack of funding, you know, I literally had to look at the books this year and I was like, wow, I actually with the, you know, with inflation and the domino effect, you know, you went from 2020, bro. No one was flying. Everyone was afraid. So only people flying were for work. Right. So you could literally fly around trip for $30 <laughs> right. to LA. And now, you know, it's, it's, you know, quadrupled at least. And so it really, I, I, I was like, I, I need to do more of the podcast route to continue to get the word out because the cost to go places it's become so expensive and there's never some strings attached that I'm saying to this police department, well, we want, uh, well, I need this money. This is literally, like I said, a God thing from my heart. You don't owe me anything. Right. I'm, you know, I, but you know, the, the public needs to understand the importance of law enforcement. It's not a job that is really a calling when you get people that go, that stay in, and there's a certain mayor in New York that I can call that I think that looked at it for a career opportunity. You get the results, you know, that that you get from it yeah. when guys who are dedicated to it like you and see it as a call. And this is a completely different outlook you have. And we have to be willing to support it and support you 
because the 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 consequences for not doing it, bro, this has generational implications. Yeah. yeah. And we're just getting we're we're getting those short warning pains now. It can get a whole lot worse. Talk to anyone from Brazil. Talk to anyone again growing up in South Florida, Cuba, Venezuela. They will tell you they don't have anywhere else to go, Anthony. They're here escaping from it. That's why they're speaking up right. the way they're speaking up now. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, Hollywood, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, I remember, you know, watching the trailer for Support Our Shields when I first yeah. became aware of you. Um, that trailer, even the trailer meant a lot to me. I, I haven't seen or heard all your stuff yet, but I have, yes. you know, uh, seen and listened to much of it. Um, it's encouraging stuff. You, you're, you're putting yourself out there. You're saying things that, uh, are not popular, uh, Correct. but, but I, <laughs> but I believe, you know, is, is truth. Um, and, um, you know, and, and within it, you know, you, you, you love the Lord and, and you're willing to come on here and, and talk about things of a spiritual nature. And I appreciate that as well. Um, just, just to close out the episode here, yes. how can people find you and support you? And then also, uh, what, let's do that first. How can people find okay. you and, and support you? What website and, and support you? Where, where, where can yes. they find you? Uh, supportourshields.com. Yeah, that, that's the number one place because from there, you know, you'll be able to link to the social media pages like, like Twitter and, and Gab. And then, uh, so supportourshields.com and critical. So, of course, that's for the support of law enforcement. And then for critical conversations and a critical perspective, that's actually. Uh, criticalnetwork.net. Awesome. All right. Thank you. For, or Hollywood Morris. Yeah. Or, right. or, 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 or Hollywood Morris. Either way that works. Yeah. You type in uh Hollywood Morris, you'll, you'll uh, be yeah. able to find it. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, yeah. And, and I would encourage people to check out those websites and those podcasts. Um, you know, Hollywood has a lot of uh, good uh, professionally done stuff out there. Um, and, and if you, uh, enjoy this podcast, I think you'll really enjoy, uh, some of the stuff he's putting out there. Hollywood, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, what I do with all my guests, I give you the final word. Uh, you close out the episode, uh, speaking about whatever's on your heart and however you wish to say it. And, uh, yeah. Hollywood Morris, final word. Final word for me, bro, is that what what we're doing is so important because at the center of it the word tells us we don't fight against flesh and blood this is about principalities and i have seen in my own you know amazing 45 years on earth like i said such a powerful testimony of what the lord can do in the hearts of of everyday people and how they can be a blessing. And when we don't submit to him, how your life can be a curse and it can be a cancer to other people. And so the, the thing that I'm so focused about now with everything that I'm doing and the things that I'm speaking out against this critical race theory, this black liberation theology, this wokeness is because at the heart of it is idolatry. And, you know, we often think about that when we're reading the Bible, we think about these wooden carved images, but we have so many idols in our country, in our society today. And I think that 2020 revealed a lot of that to us. 
I think one of the biggest we have now is skin color. And I'm sick and tired of seeing people. We're literally blaming everything else, bro. We we blame the we we blame the healthcare industry. We blame police officers. So many people are suffering from sickness because of unforgiveness. They're holding things in their heart, either in their. I had to do this with my parents. We shared the night, bro. It was a mess. I had to come to a place in my life in my early twenties. Forgive your mother. Forgive your father. Holding on to that on them is not helping you. And so we literally, from from working with over 50 churches, ranging all the way from California to Florida, I see people every Sunday going through the motions, yet harboring hatred for someone they don't know because they don't look like you. That is not of Christ. And and when we do that, we're literally destroying ourselves. You know, Proverbs talks about digging a ditch for someone else that you're going to end up in. And so it's so that is tied into so many problems that we have today is the idolatry of your flesh. And we're warned not to do that. It's being promoted on a grand scale. When you look at someone Stop looking at them for the color of their skin and understand that person is a creation of our heavenly father and treat them accordingly, just like you want them. It will solve so many problems in our lives. And, and you can go, like I said, I'm, I'm walking what I'm talking. You can go. I live in a place now that is claimed by these so-called media experts to be racist MAGA country. And, bro, I've seen so much love from people again, who don't look like me, the Lord is just showing this to me. I'm out in the middle of nowhere in the Ocala National Forest. Again, I'm a kid who was raised in the city. I know nothing about rural life on a day-to-day basis, bro. And I have a community of believers. I, I move in the, in, the, in the next, in the, in the neighbor next door happens to be a deputy sheriff. That, that's a God thing. Like I said, who literally, you know, my travel schedule so there, this couple checks on my wife every day when I'm not here. Two ranches over, there's another family who keeps me from burning down this whole situation because I have no idea what I'm doing. When you see us in a picture, we obviously don't look alike, but this is what community is. How are we claiming, and this is for the believers, that we want to be with our father one day Well, there's no color section in heaven. (laughs) That's obvious. So start living like that now. And again, if you, there's so many people who are hating other people for something they didn't do to you and you didn't experience. And if you had an experience like I did, you know, it's it's possible to live today and have a bad experience with someone that doesn't look like you. Why are you holding on to that? That's only killing you. Holding on, you know, we have so many people that are going to hear this, brother, that probably, unlike me, didn't grow up with their father in the picture. And that's caused so many problems in their life or the relationship with the mother or the grandmother or the foster parent. Let it go. It is only eating you up from the inside. And it's, it's a microcosm of what is happening 
from our in our country. We're fall we're we're falling from the inside because we're not following Christ and we're not giving things up to Him and living according to His Spirit and His Word. Great word, Hollywood. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, bro. You know, I'm going to, of course, be continuing to support you and watching everything that you're doing. And like I said, it is an honor for me to come on with you because, as you said, when we connected, we were able to see what each other are doing. We grew up completely different lives. We live in completely different parts of the country. But it's that love of Christ and love of country, well, love of Christ, love of family and love of country and community that that's what makes us brothers. That's what real family is. I'm a living witness. Yeah. Awesome stuff, Hollywood. Thanks so much for coming on. Before we dive into the cue the dip standout, I wanted to let you know that this is actually the final episode of season two. Season three will be starting in January of 2023, and I'm already working on a lineup of great guests that you will definitely want to hear during that season. Patrons will be able to get an exclusive patron-only episode in December, to be exact, Saturday, December 17th. So if you're a patron, keep an eye on your email inbox for more information on that exclusive episode just for you. If you want to become a patron, go to www.diakonasacc.com, hit that support tab button, and get more information on how you can do that. The Kicking Up the Dust in Pursuit standout for this episode is born out of a tragic situation that occurred in Bristol, Connecticut. I believe Gary and I touched on this during one of our last episodes, but I wanted to take the time to really highlight a hero officer and the ultimate sacrifice of two other officers. If you are a regular fan of the show, you know that diakonos is Greek for servant, and within that word are root words that mean to kick up the dust in pursuit of something. And so for this episode, the kicking up the dust in pursuit standout and hero is Officer Alec Iorado from the Bristol Police Department. So far, the investigation shows that this is what happened. On the 12th of October, around 10.42 p.m., Officer Iorado responded with Lieutenant Dustin DeMonte and Sergeant Alex Hamsey to a residence for a 911 call placed actually by the suspect. It appears it was purely to ambush them. Once they arrived, the suspect ambushed them from behind. It sounds like he was hiding in a row of bushes. He ambushed these three officers from behind, firing a rifle uh, over 80 times during the course of this ambush. Both Lieutenant DeMonte and Sergeant Hamsey were killed at the scene. Officer Iorado was shot in the leg, but he was able to escape to the rear of the house through a neighbor's yard and back to a police cruiser. From approximately 75 feet away in the dark, he was able to put this suspect down with one shot to his neck, killing him. I'm going to play some of the actual audio from Officer Iorado's body cam. You'll hear Officer Iorado calling on the radio for help, checking his wound and making exclamations about that wound. You'll hear more shots from the suspect, Officer Iorado limping to his cruiser and and the one shot he takes before making more radio transmissions in the background during this whole thing you'll also hear an unknown female and male screaming as well uh yelling as well i believe they 
are somehow involved with the incident uh, as family members of the suspect. Shots fired, shots fired. More cars, send everyone. Officer shot, officer shot. Receive officer shot. This body cam had an effect on me. It is one of the more disturbing body cams I've seen in a while. Not because of you see any gore or graphic pictures or video, but more because of the eerie silence and, and the screaming and what you have to understand that Officer Iorado was going through. The level of emotional management Officer Iorado is doing during this incident is unbelievable. He's unsure of his condition or the condition of the other officers. He knows he's been wounded himself, but he's now alone and he's asking for more help to get there. But he also understands that he is going to have to face off with this suspect on his own. He doesn't know how bad that injury is. He doesn't know how serious it is, but he works through it and he ends that threat before he gets treatment. During the entire course of this incident, you hear him controlling his breathing so that he can speak clearly into the radio and so that he can take one shot because he knows, he knows, whether consciously or unconsciously, he knows that he has to take one shot and make that one shot count because he's outgunned by a suspect who has a high power rifle. So he gets one shot or that firepower is turned on him. The level of discipline and courage Officer Iorado portrayed in this incident was astronomical. It's very difficult for people to understand how difficult uh, it is to conduct yourself at the way Officer Iorado did in a situation like this. So commendable. This incident will change anyone as a person and it will change him as a person. But I hope and pray 
Officer Iorado comes out on the other side to continue his career and finish well. Just an amazing officer who survived something horrific and did so in a way that brings great honor to the profession. Our thoughts and prayers are with the families of Lieutenant DeMonte and Sergeant Hamsey who were killed during the ambush. Listen, it is for officers like this that I do this podcast and specifically this Cue the Dip segment. Cannot speak high, highly enough of Officer Iorado and how he conducted himself during this incident. Finally, during Hollywood's last words, he mentioned the sin of idolatry and how its prevalence in our culture and in our hearts is bringing so much heartache. I wanted to expand on that because it's such an important observation. Idolatry is anything that replaces the God of the Bible, the one true God. It really can be anything, and we have to recognize that even good things in our life can become idols. The list of idols that we have and that I have at times feel endless. Things like comfort, safety, money, stuff, experiences, traveling, working out, freedom, people, food, drink, sex, attention, praise, the list goes on and on. And again, even that which is good can become an idol if it replaces or becomes more important than God Almighty. Our hearts are good at taking on new, new idols. It is a constant battle, even in my own life. As Christians, we know that when we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to flee from idolatry, we know that we flee to the throne of grace. We seek the help of the one who saves. We pray and we dwell on the word of God to keep idols at bay and by grace keep Jesus Christ on the throne of our lives. But if you don't know God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, then idols have absolute open season on your life and fight to control you. As Bob Dylan sang many years ago, everybody's gotta serve somebody. And if you don't serve Jesus, then who or what are you serving? The great German theologian Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional savior, end quote. Except one day, you will find out that the thing your heart clings to or confides in will not save you. It may bring you comfort at times. It may bring you joy or pleasure at times. It may bring you fulfillment at times, but it won't save you. There will be those moments of emptiness, moments of clarity in your life when you realize that this thing you are worshiping, that you are putting your hope into, is actually hopeless. Moments when all is quiet and you are alone and you realize that that which your heart clings to will not fully fulfill you. It will not save you. Why? Because salvation resides in nothing but Christ alone. We are people created by God. And because we are created by God, deep in our souls, we have a need to serve him and worship him. And when that service and worship is given to something else, we will ultimately perish. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created 
through him and for him. God created all things, including you and I, and all things were created for him to worship him. The Bible even talks about inanimate objects glorifying God. In Isaiah 55, 12, it says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Listen, if the mountains and the hills and the trees, inanimate objects, were meant to worship God, how much more us, people with a mouth to speak and a soul, people made in his image. But we can do no such thing apart from Christ crucified. We are far from him. In many ways, we are how Jesus describes the hypocrites in Matthew 15, people that honor him with our mouths, but have hearts that are far from him. And we all know people like this, people who speak of God, they go to church, they say they're a Christian, but their hearts and their lives show that they are far from him. No idol can save us. Nothing can save us except Jesus Christ. Born to a virgin, fully man, fully God, living a perfect life, and therefore having no idols in his heart. And yet he took on our sin and our idolatry. He became our sin and he took it to the cross as the perfect and righteous sacrifice, dying in our place and then rising three days later. And right now, at the right hand of God the Father, and one day he will return. Are you ready? Are you serving him or idols? The idols are death, but Jesus is life. Recently, I heard this quote written by John Bunyan. John Bunyan is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote this quote in uh, his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he says, quote, But one day, as I was passing in the fields, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul, Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all I saw, with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say as my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, my God could not say of me, he wants my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. My righteousness is Jesus Christ alone. Is your righteousness Jesus Christ? If not, right now, at this moment, you can kick up the dust in pursuit of confession, repentance, and belief in the one who smashes all idols. Thank you.